This episode of Better in the Dark is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audiblepodcast.com slash better in the dark. Over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. Sign up for a free 40-day trial, including a free download of your first book just for trying out their service. Some of the available titles include Fever of the Bone by Val McDermott, Johnny and the Bomb by Terry Pratchett, and The Stress of Her Regard by Tim Powers. So after you finish listening to BITD, why don't you go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash betterinthedark and get your free audiobook today. F.R. Murdoch. You're not Murdoch? No, that's me. It's just my middle name ain't R. It's Lucinda. Lucinda? Lucinda. The Latin lucidus via lucera meaning to shine. An origin it shares with the word lucid meaning to think or see clearly. It's a beautiful name. We all feel better. We all feel better in the dark. In conclusion, if you find yourself falling asleep, having a dream child in the middle of a nightmare, while you're trying to wake up when you're being chased by a guy with razors on his fingers, and you don't know it's a new nightmare, and then you got Jason, he's got an axe, got Kelly rolling, she's not saying, nightmare baby, nightmare baby, nightmare baby. Flow. H-Y. Once upon a time on a Super Bowl night, two guys from BK brought the points to life. Gave you some previews and some laughs. Wasn't no big thing, no one thought it would last. Then one started growling at the mention of a chick. The other guy would lose it every time he got pissed. Next thing you know, they got a good fan base. So they said, what the hell, let's continue to pace. No stone uncovered, they will take on a topic. Might bring on a guest, and together they rock it. Cause they're in like Flint, too much is a cool. If you don't know the beautiful one, they'll take you to school. I'm talking about Tom, DJ, and Derek Ferguson. The best podcast out, hands down, it's set. So in the tub, in the car, if you're chilling in the park. Welcome to another show of Better in the Dark. Exactly your problem my quest affords me no such luxury. Not even on a tender night like this, the moon glimmering. On a night just like this, I return home from the hut to find the bloodbath. Nothing remained of my six beloved brothers. I wear this bracelet, forged of the steel of their shields, for constant reminder of my vow to avenge them. My only advice would just be to keep your head up, hang in there, live every day to the fullest. Have sex as much as you can by campfire when you're all alone and your brother is out gathering wood. And until we get back in touch with you... Go watch that movie! Right, Davin? Go watch that movie! (laughs) This is a Better in the Dark spoiler warning. The following program features discussions of major plot points, even the endings... Of recent films. If you have not seen the films discussed and don't want to know anything, stop listening now. You have been formally warned, and from this point on, we have the right to complain, bellyache, bitch, moan, or otherwise whine about it. Thank you, and enjoy the show! 
and this is something I have realized. This is going to be a second or third review episode in a row where we're going to be starting to talk about people who died. I know, it's becoming a depressing habit. Yeah. <laughs> but it's got to be done. Better to do it here where we have the flexibility. Yeah. And after all, it's not awful people keep dying. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also kind of like a downer note to start, like, hey, I know we took a break and you missed us for a month, but we're back. And here's some dead people. This is a movie-themed podcast. Yes. So, I don't know how anybody else feels about it, but I know if I was listening to a movie-themed podcast, and you had such notable people such as Elizabeth Taylor, and oh, yeah, as of Luban, yesterday, yeah. as of yesterday when we were recording this, because we are recording this on the 10th, folks, and yesterday, of course, we all heard the news that a great, great man, Sidney Lumet, passed mm-hmm. away, a guy who was director, I should say, should yeah. say guy, I didn't know him intimately, to call him a guy, but he was responsible for a whole slew of really really popular as well as profitable and thought-provoking movies exactly such as 12 angry men network one of my favorite yeah network i can watch that movie over and over again and never get tired of it kramer versus kramer versus kramer which i didn't like but <laughs> i can't like well it was significant at the time yeah it was that's the thing to keep in mind it was a film it was one of the first films at that time to acknowledge the fact that our society had changed and that people were breaking up. Divorce was becoming commonplace. You want to know what I remember about that movie mm-hmm. that made it so controversial? And you might remember it too, because right. see, I was around at that time. Matter of fact, you know when that movie came out? Yeah. Me and Patricia just started dating. And so I asked her, of course, to go to the movies, as I take all of my yeah. dates to, because see, that was my criteria for judging women back then. I took them to the movies, and depending on how they reacted to the movies, yes. <laughs> that would determine if exactly. I kept dating them or not. Kramer versus Kramer was out. We got to the movie theater, and instead we went to see Penitentiary. Yeah. Of all things. Because she thought that was a movie I wanted to see. But she really wanted to <laughs> right. see Kramer versus Kramer. Here's the main thing of the argument that I'm trying to get to. The thing about Kramer versus Kramer. Women were in uproar about yeah. that movie because Dustin Hoffman's wife, played by Meryl Streep in that right. movie, wanted to give up her son. And yeah. all women, they were up in arms about that. They said, oh, only a man would say that a woman didn't want to take care of her child. But, as you and I well know, because mm. we live in the real yeah. world, unlike some people, that happens when you exactly. have women don't want to take care of their children. But they have them. And then they change their mind. They get into this crap. How about that woman that drowned her five kids? Yeah. People don't want to accept that this goes on. But it Lamette doesn't. was very much a man who was but about... But first... But first, stop. We should rewind. Hammer, ha- hammer time. <laughs> rewind. <laughs> da, 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 da. Hammer time. Oh. But it just goes to show you, folks, that we haven't done this for a while. We got a lot that we got to yeah. cover, so we wanted to get right and into this. And we're sorry we've been away for a while. Derek's no, had some stuff, and I've had some I'm stuff. I'm not sorry. i got a life. <laughs> but this is Which better implies than- that I don't. No, you do have a life. You were just telling me that you won the karaoke contest. I didn't didn't win. win. I'm in the finals. You're in the finals. Yeah. Yes. You got stuff you got to do. And if we're not on, first of all, this is Better in the Dark. And the man sitting to my right is my good friend Thomas DJ. And the man sitting to my left is, of course, the esteemed Mr. Derek Ferguson. And we're Creator of many, many things, such as the Dylan series. Ah, listen, it's too early in the episode. We'll get to that later. We got yes. all this movie goodness to get to. And we are back after, as Tom said, an enforced hiatus in yeah. which there were things he had to do and things I had to do. Involving cats, believe it or not. Yes. Uh, you're turning into an old cat lady before your time. I don't have any cats in my apartment. I got to go to my mom's house to take care of her cats, though. 
But as we always suggest, whenever we do go on one of our little hiatuses, mm-hmm. we do heartily encourage that you go into our backlog yeah. and listen to some of our former episodes. And to be that, fair, this that is, you may not have listened to. This is only the second hiatus we've ever been on. Yeah. It's not like some podcasts I can talk about. I'm looking at you, Mondo Movie. Me and Tom work hard at this podcast and we're doing our regular jobs. Yeah. <laughs> My boss told me your attendance on your job was like on your podcast. <laughs> I give you that raise. Yeah. And we want to remind people that, of course, Better in the Dark is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audiblepodcast.com slash betterinthedark. They have over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. As always, I have taken the liberty of making some suggestions for you that are kind of sort of tied in with this episode. Go right ahead. For example, you can get Apollo's Angels, A History of Ballet by Jennifer Hoseman. The Unknown Terrorist by Richard Flanagan. And collected episodes of The Green Hornet and Cato. No, that's Batman. That's Batman. The Green Hornet is fighting a bumblebee. Yes, yeah. exactly. When you're done listening to this episode of Better in the Dark, why don't you go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash betterinthedark and get your free audiobook today. Also, we have a second sponsor I want to bring up because they've got a sale that is of interest to people who love Better in the Dark. Oh, really? Yes. This episode is also brought to you by the Warner Brothers Archive Collection, which provides you with a number of releases every month that you can order online of rare and obscure things from their vault. And they are presently getting ready to release the Stanley Kubrick Collection. Nine Stanley Kubrick films that will be available on pre-order for only $99.99. A lot of people have been bugging us about wanting to hear us talk about Kubrick. For those people, I suggest you might want to pick this up because it's only going to be there for a limited time, and it's good stuff. Also, I just want to say that my mother sent us a donation because she thinks we're good boys. So You didn't have to do that, Mom. So, Mom, this episode is for you, and if you would like to donate to Better in the Dark, we're not saying you have to, but if you want to... But Papa needs new pair every time. Yeah. <laughs> Papa could use some money to buy a better computer audio editing program, but if you want to donate some money, probably the best thing to do is send a money order, because we've had problems with those personal checks. Yeah. Much as we appreciate it, folks, we got once a very sizable donation one time, and we wound up, we couldn't cash the damn thing because they put the phone number in to verify the address and the phone number didn't come up. So if it's at all possible, we would prefer that it be a money Money order. order. So send it to Thomas DJ, care of Myrtle Sporting Goods, 5716 Myrtle Avenue, Ridgewood, New York, 11385. And if you're going to send a check, the best thing to do is to make it out to my friend over here, Derek Ferguson. Why me? Because then you can deposit it in your oh, bank account. Oh, oh, all right. And then you can say, here, here's your half, Tom. Now get oh, out of my face. Oh, all right. Whatever floats your boat. Yeah. Now that that's out of the Do way. Do we have any... We have one piece of... Listener email. We have one piece of listener email, and then we can talk about two great, great people. Okay, and then we can jump right into the... And then go news. into the reviews. Yes. This is from our good friend... Ron Fortier, who will, of course, be joining us again. Sometimes we have to still coordinate with him regarding an episode on soundtrack composers that we want to do. And you know I'm going to be seeing Ron. I'm going to finally get to meet him. At a pole park. I'm going, yeah, to the pole park convention Mm -hmm. I'm going to. Patricia made the hotel reservations 
just the other day. It looks like I'm going to be going. So, Ron says, Hi, Derek and Thomas. Once again, you guys had me in stitches. I'm sure both of you know my own personal schedule is a nightmare these days for my editing chores for Airship 27 Productions, on top of all my personal writing projects, both in prose and comics. Now I'm doing a weekly podcast on top of all that. You can easily see my time is truly limited. Yet, one of the few pleasures I always allow myself is sitting back and listening to Better in the Dark. I know you two are going to have me laughing in no time flat, all the while teaching me something new I didn't know about movies. This episode was no exception. In regards to the three movies you discussed, I have fond memories of seeing Dr. Gold in the Bikini Machine when it was released. All the time, considering the cast, it seemed a distant cousin to all the beach blanket movies we seemed to be flooded with at the end of the 50s and the very early 60s. Listening to you two ramble on about this film with Vincent Price, Frankie Avalon, and Dobie Gillis's own Dwayne Hickman had me in stitches. God! Were we really that young once upon a time? Whereas I never saw its Italian sequel, and from your comments, that's probably a good thing. Not being as versed in foreign films as much as the two of you, all I know of Mario Bava is that he was a horror director of some note. So I was fascinated by this story, and Tom, your Bava impersonation was hilarious. And finally, I have to confess that although I've been told about Danger Diabolic many, many times by friends and colleagues in the comic industry, I've never seen it. It was always one of those things I meant to do someday, and of course someday never came around. Now, having heard your praise of the film and wonderful extras on the DVD, I've made up my mind to put this on my movie wish list and procure a copy at the earliest possible date. Thanks for giving me the push. Once again, in the middle of a busy, crazy, hectic week, you two have provided me with a few hours of honest-to-goodness fun. It is always much appreciated. Thanks ever. Ron. Okay. Thank you, Ron. And don't feel bad about not seeing Danger Diabolic. That's just one of those movies that people have heard about over the years, but actually very few yeah. people have seen. I tell anybody, anytime that you hear about these movies that we talk about, you say, oh, I really wish I had seen that movie. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. that movie was unavailable for I don't know how many yeah. years. The only way that I saw it, actually, in recent years, as on Turner Classic Movies. That's part right. of their underground series. They had it on there. Well, Rob, the disc- Rob Zombie, you, he was a big fan of that movie, and he showed it. Not once, but a couple of times. The disc is available through Netflix. I think it's out of print, but I'm sure you could probably find a copy somewhere, either through eBay or on Amazon.com. Oh, sure. You can find everything. But, yeah, those extras, particularly that interview-slash-documentary with Steve Bissett, Mm -hmm. where he does the panel comparisons and shows you how Bava, years earlier than Robert Rodriguez, saw this comic book and saw it as a storyboard. A storyboard, yeah. There are a couple of news stories we want to talk about, but we want to talk about these two great people first. We talked about Cindy Lamed a bit at the top of the hour. Mm -hmm. Then there's, of course, Liz Taylor, who passed the week before, right? I think it was a week ago. They're going at a about a rate of two or three a week now. Very. They're all looking at each other and saying, who's going to go next? Except for Betty White. Yeah. Who apparently has made up her mind to outlive everybody. I think <laughs> Betty White stole the photograph of Dick Clark that he had in his attic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's mine yeah. now, dear. Mm-hmm. I honestly think so. Yeah, but Sidney Lumet, he made a lot of tremendously good movies that were notable for the subject matter and the themes that they went to, like 12 Angry Men. This is a movie that is one of the most suspenseful movies I can think of, and yet it takes place all in one room. We right. never leave that room until the very end of the movie. You never learn the names of any of the characters that's in there, but you know each and every yeah. one of these men. They all have individual personalities, they all have individual desires mm-hmm. and aspirations and you get a sense of that in that one little room. There was a remake that was made of that movie that was practically a shot for shot remake of the Lumet movie and of course Network was the one where we got the classic I'm mad as hell, hell I can't take, take it anymore. anymore and Peter Finch 
I believe was the first actor to posthumously right. win an Academy Award mm-hmm. for his role because he died a couple well, of months Well, he was after. always, Lamette was one of these people who was always five minutes ahead of the curve. He always knew when to do a movie about an issue before everybody got super obsessed with it. And I think that the key to his is that even though he was dealing with these issues, mm-hmm. that he never forgot first and foremost. He got to entertain people. Yeah. His movies are entertaining. But they also make you think, but in a way that doesn't get rid And what is it with... See, these old school directors, they knew how to talk about an issue and dramatize it without beating you over the head about it every five minutes. This is what it's really about. This is what the movie's really about. Okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. I was talking with Michael Bailey last night, and somehow the subject of First Blood came up. And he had talked about, you know that it's going to get remade. I said, if it gets remade now, all the gray will be taken out of it. Because that's the thing about Lumet. John Frankenheimer was somebody we're going to be talking about in the next mm-hmm. episode. They knew that there was never a all right or all wrong. There was always shades of gray. What made things interesting were those shades of gray. Whereas nowadays, it's just, let's take the shades of gray clear out. You can't have an anti-hero. You have to have a hero. Right. Or everything is sanitized. Like in mm-hmm. the current remake, we were just talking about it briefly before we came yeah. on the air. The remake of the classic Dudley Moore Arthur oh. that they made it. Now, my understanding in this movie that the character of Arthur, he's this man boy now. Yeah. First of all, what makes this different from any other Russell Brand yeah. role that we've seen where he plays a man well, boy? Well, the thing that amazes me is that for looking only at the trailers, I'm telling you this yeah, right I'm now. Not, yeah, I'm not I will never, ever, ever, ever see this movie. I'm not going to see it, no. If Helen Mirren had been firing a machine gun yes. in this movie, we would Preferably be at Russell Brand. Yeah. If at some point in the movie... Helen Mirren would pull out her machine gun and shoot to death Russell Brand and Jennifer Garner. It would then be automatically the greatest movie ever. But you know what I said? Well, I'm not going to go see the movie, not only because of that, but also because apparently they've blown one of the funniest lines in the movie right in the trailer, where she mm-hmm. knocks him out and tells her Van der Holyfield, yeah. either you get him out of the ring or I'm going to bite your other ear off. Yeah. See, that's the line should have been saved for the movie. Right. But also, what made the movie interesting, the first one, which apparently they've taken out of it because, of course, you're not supposed to laugh at alcohol yeah. anymore, is that they remove Arthur's alcoholism, which was a very big part yeah. of the first movie. But apparently they removed that because, well, we can't laugh at that. Yeah. yeah. You want me to list the problems I have with this film well, briefly? Uh, well, well there's that. The fact that Russell Brand is just a silly little boy. Yeah. Which to me is not interesting. To the fact that the Liza Minnelli character is now being played by Greta Gerwich, I think is her name. I have no idea. I know that James Dye really likes her as an actress, but it's not a knock at her. It's just that the thing that made the romance really interesting mm-hmm. to me in the first Arthur is that Liza Minnelli wasn't this raving beauty. Right. And she was a dad down to earth, very blue, because she was living alone with her father. Right. In As the, a matter of fact, with her and Arthur meet, mm-hmm. she's shoplifting stuff yeah. that she can't afford to buy. Exactly. Or, I think she's in Bergdorf Goodman and Arthur pays for it, and that's how they meet. Whereas Greta Gerwich is Caucasian, wankery style pretty. And that's also the Liza Minnelli character, I'm glad you pointed out, she was very, she was plain, very, playing the ethnic type. Yeah. And Greta Gerwich is this tall, blonde, Teutonic type. Mm-hmm. And it's also very obvious that Minnelli in the original film consciously de-glamorized herself. Yeah. She's wearing very little makeup in the film. The fact that they 
took the Lisa Auerbacher character, it's a very small role mm-hmm. in the original, and expanded it to a full-on female lead role. Right, for, for Jennifer Garner. Garner, yeah. Ms. Manhans herself. And also, and we have it on record that we love Helen Mirren. Yeah, who doesn't? I think by switching it from an older man to an older woman, first off, making it Helen Mirren gives us this weird icky nanny porn vibe. Okay. Having this woman who you and I both acknowledged happens to be sexy even in this advanced age, taking care of this man as if he is a little boy Mm -hmm. is really, really creepy to me. Well, from what I gather of the thing, because in the original one, Arthur's mother was the one that told him he had to marry this woman or he was going to be cut off. Apparently what they're setting up now is a conflict between the woman's actual mother and the Helen right. Mirren character who is like a substitute mother. Yeah. So I gather that's what they're doing. I really don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is that in the original one, John Gilgood nailed that role so perfectly yeah. and the note he played it at hmm. that by comparison, anybody suffers, yeah. even Helen Mirren. And I'm sure she'd be the first one to agree with us. That's one of those classic iconic performances that you just look at and you say, well, nobody can top that. Yeah. But... Yeah, I don't plan on those I mean, it's obvious to me also that it's product. It is producers picking a title seemingly at random. Well, this was a movie that started Englishman as a wacky character. Let's give this to Russell. And I hate Russell Brand. I fucking hate this guy. Okay, here's my thing. I don't hate Russell Brand, but get me to the Greek showed me that he can't carry a movie yeah. as a leading man. Mm-hmm. He was perfect in a he movie was perfect, both me yeah. and you love. And I get Sarah Marshall. And I loved him in that because he was a supporting character. Yeah. The note he played that supporting character was so right yeah. it's hard to dislike him. But it get me to the Greek and I've had people all time, oh man, you didn't like that movie. You didn't like No, I didn't like Get Me to the Greek. It wasn't funny. The funniest part of that movie, did you see that movie? No. The funniest part of that movie was actually Sean Combs. They had a scene where he was having a staff meeting. And what made the movie so funny was that for a moment, I think he actually broke character and he was actually Sean Combs right. running an actual meeting and he wasn't the character. <laughs> I got that impression at least. He's one of these people, much like Jennifer Aniston, that the movie studios is trying to convince us this is a major star. Right. This is a major star. You have to love this guy. Well, no, I don't. And more importantly, I don't have to pay my money to go see yeah. him either. You can see that he's one of these people who thinks he has to be on all the time. I saw him on Conan. Okay. Because he was on in the first week promoting this movie. Oh, he's promoting the yeah. shit out of it, which also tells yeah. me something else. And you can tell this is all bit. And apparently, everything that I know about this guy, he's a very mean-spirited human being, mm-hmm. which is why I say he and Katy Perry deserve each other. Well, I don't know about that, but listen, anybody that nails Katy Perry, I say he's got to have something no, no. going for him. It's like Brett Ratner and Serena Williams. The guy makes rotten movies, but he yeah. got to have something going for him if he nails Serena Williams. <laughs> I can't stand Katy Perry. You can't stand anybody. No, you, I can't. You can't stand. We're going to talk about a number of people. You can't stand anybody who's not the beautiful one. No, no, we're going to talk about a number of people during the course of this, this episode that I What's do not like. What's like is Zooey Deschanel's head on top of a porn star's body. Well, I've told you this before. She's one of these people who, and I can't stand these people in real life, hear the phrase, keeping it real. Yeah. And think that it's a license to be as mean mm-hmm. and as nasty to other people as possible because they're keeping it real. Well, no, she's mean and nasty because she's Zooey Deschanel's head on top of a porn star's body. <laughs> what part you don't get? <laughs> Anyway, moving right This will not be the first time we talk about Zoe Deschanel in this episode. My girl. 
we've talked about Sidney Lamette. What about Liz Taylor? Well, as you accurately pointed out when we were talking, Liz Taylor is probably the forerunner mm-hmm. of the Lindsay Lohans and right. those ilk of actresses who are more popular for what they do off the yeah. set than actually on. When we talk about Lindsay Lohan, we don't talk about any of her movies. We talk about her frequent public right. meltdowns and all of her legal problems. Liz Taylor was most notably known for what? Her and Richard Burton got divorced and remarried. What, three or four? Twice. Twice. So I think it's like the, the final total was eight. She had eight marriages. Yeah, yeah all told. From yeah. Eddie Fisher straight on to that Larry guy. Yeah. The thing, though, that makes Liz Taylor different from the Lindsay Lowens and the Paris Hiltons of our world now, mm-hmm. is that she did it with a certain elegance. Oh, yeah. People may think we're joking about this, but when people think about what may be arguably her most famous film, Cleopatra, what do they think about? The they, budget. They think about the budget, and they think about, to the point where you actually remarked to me when we were discussing this for the first time, mm-hmm. that you didn't realize Rex Harrison was in the film. Because you never hear about it. Yeah. Martin Landau was in the movie. Yeah. I didn't. I'm sitting there and saying, well, all these great actors in this movie, and you never hear about them. Because you only hear about Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. As far as you know, they're the only two people in Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. Roddy McDowell is in that right. movie. I'm saying, my God, nobody says anything about them. Matter of fact, Rex Harrison is in the movie because he played Julius Caesar. Yeah. He's in it for about half the movie. Mm-hmm. I have a story about... uh, I told you the story. The story about the poster? What's that? When the film finally was getting ready to be released, they put this big poster on Hollywood Boulevard, Mm -hmm. which featured Liz Taylor in Cleopatra garb, kind of draped out on a couch, with Richard Burton playing Mark uh, Mark Anthony. No. Yeah, it is Mark Anthony. Because when I think Mark Anthony, of course, I think of J-Lo which I think is really funny, just the idea of Richard Burton playing Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony? Kind of standing over her. Rex Harrison's saw this and was very nonplussed because he had it in his contract that he would get above the title billing. So they called up 20th Century Fox and yelled and screamed mm-hmm. about this. And the next day, this very obviously pasted at the last minute picture mm-hmm. of Rex Harrison has Julius Caesar looking over the shoulder of Mark Anthony <laughs> shows up on that poster. And it's remarkable how many people actually have not seen Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, now today we got people that right. have, it seems like everybody has ADD yeah. because you tell them that Cleopatra's for four hours, man, I'm not going to watch yeah. that thing four hours long. It turns out it's an entertaining movie. It and is. I'm not forget gonna... the back. Once again, we're going back to a time where movie going was an event. And event, yeah, you actually got dressed up. You put on a yeah. suit and tie. You put on a dress and high heels to go to the movies. Mm-hmm. And when it was in the theaters, as we've said before, yeah. you go out, they had intermission. You yeah. got in the lobby. They served drinks. Went out there. You were talking with other people in the audience about the movie, and then you went... And a four-hour movie was a real event. Oh, yeah. Dr. Zhivago, another one that goes on forever. Right. These are what they call the roadshow right. things where it went around. And it wasn't... It a, would go from city to city. city. It wouldn't be... These days, everything is nationwide release. Right. Except for smaller pictures that you don't realize that there were these movies, these big event movies. They would roll into town for one month only. It's Cleopatra. It's Dr. Zhivago. It's Ryan's daughter. And then after the month was over, they'd pack up and they'd go to Philadelphia yeah. or Boston or Detroit. That's why they called them Rocho. And it wasn't until the movies were re-released, they would cut them down for right. a half hour. And then they were released on a double bill mm-hmm. at smaller neighborhood theaters. What they called the second run. 
Right. You and me in New York, we are in a city which no longer has second-run or third-run theater. Oh, no, no. The idea was, if you were really excited about a movie, you went to the first-run showing. But if you were interested but not that interested, you waited till the second-run theater got it for a dollar. Which was the Netflix back in the Yeah, day. basically. <laughs> yeah. And if you really weren't interested, you waited a year to the third-run yeah. theater and got in for 50 cents. Yeah, different world back then. Yeah. But yeah, Rex Harris. Matter of fact, you don't see Elizabeth Taylor for the first 30 minutes of the movie. Right. It's just Rex Harris. Harrison as Julius Caesar coming to Egypt to put down the revolution because Cleopatra's fighting with her brother for the throne of Egypt and Rome ruled over Egypt at the time. So it's remarkable when you actually see it. The movie isn't all about Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, but you made an excellent point when you talk about that she had an elegance and a class towards mm-hmm. her, which is why she is rightly considered an icon royalty. Of beauty, yeah. yeah, remember for some like twenty years. Before, and I think most people think of her, once again, in her waning years, as that waddling grotesque she became. Even when she started gaining weight in the 60s, she was still considered one of the top ten most beautiful women of all time. Well, she was considered the most beautiful woman in the world for a while. And I think Sophia Loren might have took the crown from her when she started coming along. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But for 20 years, Elizabeth Taylor was considered the most beautiful woman in the world. It was one of her pet peeves that she was never treated seriously. Magnificent performance in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Cat on a hot, hot tin, tin roof. Where she walks around in good part of the movie, nothing but a slip, yeah. which is worth watching for. <laughs> yes. But I love her performance in Giant with Rock Hudson and, of course, James Dean, which mm-hmm. is another one of these four-hour roadshow right. movies that they show quite frequently in Turner Classic Movies. If you've never seen it, by all means, catch it. But it's worth watching because in her performance, of course, she plays this woman that marries Rock Hudson, right. who's a Texas oil billionaire. And he takes her back. And she comes from the East, where women, of course, are more outspoken and more liberal right. and they're more involved in politics and business. He brings her back to Texas, where, of course, women are expected to stay out of men's business, and she's not going for that. So it's kind of interesting to watch a character, she's a very liberated woman, Mm -hmm. trying to work her way and operate in this man-dominated society. And it's really very interesting to watch her performance in that. And when you see it, just like so many other actresses, when they're given the right role, you see that they can act. They're not just pretty face. The other thing to remark is that, and you and I have talked about this, the people from the Hollywood royalty era of movies, they're becoming fewer and fewer. Yeah, matter of fact, I was on Facebook. Off the top of my head, I could think of this Shirley Temple Black, who nobody ever Mm -hmm. thinks of, because she left movies behind long ago, and she never looked back. And I remember reading an interview with her where she said you wouldn't believe the amount of money that people offer me to come back. They said, well, why don't you come back? She said, that's in the past. She said, that's how people should remember yeah. me. They shouldn't look at me now. Much and like Betty Page in the couple of years of her life mm-hmm. where she did do appearances, but she asked people, don't please post photos or anything. I want people to remember me for that the way I was. I don't want to shatter it. And I can definitely understand that. Later on in this episode, we're going to talk about a documentary called Life of Death. And one of the people who's interviewed is Carolyn Monroe. You and I have talked about on this show how I worshipped Carolyn Monroe in the 70s mm-hmm. and then she went through this period where she got morbidly obese and looked haggard and mm-hmm. it kind of dimmed my memories of her. Right. Thankfully she's back on track again. I can report that she's slimmed down a bit. She's looking much better mm-hmm. and looking much happier too. But we've seen many, many... I've told you that story about one of your girls, Nancy Butler. Oh yeah. Where I wanted to get a 
photo for you of her at a convention about three years ago where I saw her. You're right. And then I saw her and I said, no, I'd rather Derek yeah. has the memories that he had because this would make him sad. I guess it would. It would make you know, him You want to feel really sad, you go to a convention and go into the Hollywood Alley where you have all these has-been movie stars. Mm-hmm. Or people who never even were, who had a role on one cult TV show, or was a bit player in one big movie. And they're and, still milking it for and all they're worth. They're yeah. desperate for anybody, anybody to talk to them. And see me, that's one reason why I don't like going to these things, because yes. I'm a sucker for that. Yeah. I'll go over to them and talk to them, just because I can see that they're looking around, hoping so desperately somebody will come over and say, so, so. Yeah, man, I feel so bad. Well, okay. Dolph Lundgren, how you doing, buddy? Yeah. <laughs> but I just remember going like, oh, well, Nancy Butler is here, and I should probably get a picture for Derek, or maybe get her to sign something. Just, and I just looked at how bad she looked, and I said, no. I'll just, I walked I'll right just away. pull out my Witchblade DVDs and think that. But yeah, I was trying to make a list. I was thinking, okay, there's Warren Bacall, she's mm-hmm. still with us. Mickey Rooney, right. who apparently is like Betty White, who was never going to die. I'm I mean, sure there like, are a couple of other people. Yeah, I mean, there was like four or five that came to my mind. James Garner is, right. Well, James Garner is really not golden age. Is he? He's like no, he's like age. the beginning of that second phase. Yeah. That kind of anybody can be a star phase of American movies. Yeah. You yeah. know, that lasted through Douglas, the 70s. Yeah. Like golden age. But yeah. he's not long for this world. No. Even though he looked damn good on the Academy Awards. I gotta say, one of the best Best moments for me of the Oscars, him just breaking script, if you will. And that just was the best part. Looking goggle-eyed at Anne Hathaway, and oh, I felt so sorry for Anne Hathaway. What? They should have had Kirk Douglas and Anne Hathaway yeah. host the Academy Award. I, I felt so bad for her because it seemed like she knew that her co-host had totally abandoned her, and yeah. so she's trying to put out the energy for the both of them. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out James Franklin was actually stoned or drunk, because yeah. he was so out of it, or else... He had such a level of uncomfortability that it was so obvious he didn't want to be there. Yeah, but I guess that's all we have to say on the yeah. subject of those two. God bless them, and we heartily recommend, I, at least I do, I recommend right. Elizabeth Taylor. Watch Cleopatra. Right. That's the quintessential, whatever you want to call it, Elizabeth Taylor movie, yeah. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and Giant. I think she was Tennessee Williams' muse for a while, because she also appeared in, was it Son of the Last Summer? And a couple yeah. other films based on his plays. You know what else is a good one that she was yeah. in? A really bizarre movie directed by John Huston, Reflections in a Golden Eye, ah. with Marlon. Brando, mm-hmm. which is a really, really weird movie, but you do get to see her nude briefly in yes. a movie, which is worth checking out. <laughs> <laughs> but nothing else. It's a movie where she plays the wife of Marlon Brando, right. who's an army colonel, and they're stationed at this southern base, and right. he has these repressed homosexual feelings for Robert Forster, who plays like a soldier on the base, and he's always trying to find ways of having him come to the house and do jobs with him. But yeah. turns out that Robert Forster is obsessed with his wife, right. Taylor. He takes off all of his clothes mm-hmm. and sneaks in the house. And yet, it's a weird movie. And John Huston filmed it so that everything has this golden palette to it. It's a bugged out movie. You watch it, you gotta go into it with an open mind because you're gonna say, where yeah. the hell is this going? But it's an interesting movie. And also check out some work of Cindy Lumet, including oh, 12 Angry Men, which we've discussed briefly here. Network. Network. Kramer versus Kramer. What was the name of the one he did with Al Pacino as the... Oh, The Serpico. Verdict. He did Serpico. Serpico. Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. The Verdict. The Verdict, yeah. With Paul Newman. With Paul yeah. Newman. A lot of people call themselves movie fans aren't even going to recognize their passing. Oh, yeah. They're not. Which is why I tell people who say, oh, yeah, well, I'm a fan of movies. I can ask them five questions. And within five yeah. questions, I can know, are they really movie fans? See, yeah. people get movie fans confused with, well, I like going to movies. Right. <laughs> when you're a movie fan, it's something different from you just like movies. 
There's nothing wrong with that. If I start talking to you about Sydney and you give me this blank look and you say, well, right. I've never even heard of those movies, well, then forget about it. You don't Was know. it Cindy Lumet who did that film? Was a Q&A with Nick Nolte? It might be. That's a dirty movie. Yeah. That's a yeah. very dirty Him and Andy Garcia. Yeah. It's a very dirty movie. Okay, I want to tell you why I remember that movie so well. What? At around the time to see it. I was working for the Board of Education on yeah. the Lower East Side, right off mm-hmm. of Delancey Street. Right. It was a junior high school that I was working at. And guess who used to come every day to pick up his kid? I think you, you told me. Uh, what's his name? Louis Guzman. Louis Guzman, yeah. Yeah, Louis Guzman. He used to come there every day mm-hmm. to pick up his kid. And I right. said, oh, man. And I had just seen the movie. I said, oh, man. How you? And I had seen him, but I didn't know he was an actor until I saw him in the movie. I said, wait a minute. I know that guy. Yeah. I saw him. I said, man, you're an actor. He said, yeah, man, man. I said, yeah, I just saw your movie with you. Oh, man. And after that, he would come in and meet him with yeah. thinking about movie. Very nice man. Very nice mm-hmm. guy. So, we've seen a number of movies. Yes, we have. When was the last, last we did time review? we recorded review episode was the first time we got together after the Christmas break. So that was in February. Yeah. Okay. So, so but we were covering stuff that only went up to I think December, was it? Yeah. No, no, I think it was we recorded one before the break and that covered stuff up to December. So we haven't done anything from like Christmas on. I've seen a bunch of movies, Derek's seen a bunch of movies. We're going to talk about a documentary. We got that was our first screener thanks to Kevin Lindemuth. And I have a strong suspicion that with this very, very intense movie season we got coming, coming up, up, we're going to have to schedule a couple of extra review oh. episodes. Let me just say, I went to the movies yesterday, and I know that it's probably going to suck balls, mm-hmm. but I want to see Fast Five the day it comes out. Oh, yeah. oh Just man. because I want to see Dwayne Johnson put Vin Diesel through a wall. Oh, yeah. It is so scary how much we think alike, because when we went to see, what did we see? We went to see Source Code last Tuesday, mm-hmm. and I saw the commercial, from, and like you, I have no interest in this franchise yeah. whatsoever, but when they had that brief thing yeah. of The Rock and Vin Diesel going at it, I said, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. exactly. This I'm going to go For see. For me, it's doubly satisfying because he was such a douche to me and my friend in college. Let it go, Tom. I'm just saying it's all. Let it go. The healing begins with forgiveness. Yes, yes, yes. Despite <laughs> Wait, my forgiveness. You're not going to forgive <laughs> But yeah. I don't have to because he's not a part of my life anymore. Well, yes, he is. You just said that. I'm just mentioning as a matter of interest. You, Yes, but you're allowing your personal feelings from the past. Matter of fact, lay down on the couch here. Let me get my <laughs> But yeah, like you, I have no interest in this franchise at all. But when I, I said, yeah, this I want to go see. Right. But this is going to be such a... Well, besides, your girl, Eva Mendez, is probably going to be dressed in very little throughout most of it. Well, yeah, this movie, I didn't know anything about it, mm-hmm. but when I saw that they did that slow walk, yeah. the I said, oh, this is like getting the band back together. Well, yeah, the big thing for me, I, you might have seen a different trailer, was everybody gathering their own different vehicles, and you had like yeah. Eva Mendez coming into the motorcycle and taking off the yeah, helmet and doing yeah. the Raquel Welsh-esque whip around of the hair. And they've got Tyrese Gibson yeah. from the other one, so yeah. apparently they're getting everybody. Yeah. From uh, Jordana Brewster from the fourth film is in... Uh, the guy from Tokyo Drift, yeah. he's in... Yeah, that's why I said, oh, they're getting the band back together. Right. Everybody from all of the movies. Is Michelle Rodriguez going to be in this Of course. Yeah. yeah. I think she's in everyone but Tokyo Drift. Yeah, I didn't see her in yeah. the trailer, but I'm pretty sure that she's in this song. Because she, she plays... Because she's Vin she Diesel's sister. sister. Right. So I said, okay, this one, I think I'll go see. Yeah. Because this is going to be a very intense and very crowded summer yeah. movie season. The more I see Captain America, the first event, the yeah. more I love it. Thor, apparently, we're going to go see. Yeah. Green Lantern. Oh, wow. Green Lantern. We, you and I are oh, going together for that you, one, you right? You got my hand on that. We're going to say, that Green Lantern, whoa. The more I see that. Everybody's been asking about it if I've seen the second trailer yet. I have not because I want to wait 
until I see it on the big screen. Where it was yeah. meant to be, I don't want to see it on Wonderbox. Yeah. Because everybody's like, what do you make of it? What do you make of it? What do you mean? I'm like, I don't know yet. Yeah. Tony Lantern yeah. would be amazing. I mean, even stuff that I thought I wasn't, well, okay, for example, Scream 4 I'm interested in if only because it's a rare chance yeah. to see Kristen Bell doing something, even if it's just getting killed. Right. Doing something other than falling for the wrong guy. Yeah, Scream 4. Scream, I didn't Although, think I'd be can, interested in another Scream movie. Can yeah. I say, I just give out an appeal, I know we've already did a whole episode about trailers. People who edit trailers, can you stop putting major beats in the trailer? Because there's that one shot in the Scream 4 trailer where you see Ghostface running away and she ducks ahead and pulls it off and it's Courtney Cox. No. No, please. And also in Fast Five, you've got that one stunt that's half the trailer. Yeah, when they go off that, the yeah. cliff. Four of them, two and minutes. I'm like, no, don't give us the whole stunt. Give us the beginning of the stunt and right. let us wonder how the fuck are they going to get out of that. Exactly. But one of the big punchlines for the Scream 4 trailer is Kristen Bell going, there's something really scary about a guy with a knife who just... Snaps. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know that that's one of the big lines yeah. that's in the movie. It's ridiculous. Say that stuff for the movie. So but then if they do that, they have nothing for the trailer. So, who wants to go first? You can go first. Okay, we can start with our good friend, because we've talked about him a number of times on the show so far, Darren Aronofsky. Oh, yeah. Because only Darren Aronofsky can take something beautiful and eloquent and says so much about what is great in this world and turn it into something dark and disturbing. <laughs> we are, of course, talking about Black Swan. Yes. The Argento-esque Descend into Madness movie featuring one of your least favorite actresses, Natalie Portman. It really occurred to me as I was watching this film how really icy her beauty is. Yeah. It's very prickly. She's all angles. Mm-hmm. And it works in this movie. Mm-hmm. She plays a ballerina who has been with the Metropolitan Opera Ballet for a long time, apparently. Has like a backup dancer, although she really wants to be a feature performer. It's overseen by Victor Casal, who still looks like a motherfucking freak, but he gets to go home and fuck Monica Bellucci every night. So we have to like give him a, some credit. Like I said, like Brett Ratner, Serena yeah. Williams, and like Russell Brand with Katie Perry. The guy's got to have something yeah. going for him. <laughs> so anyway, they're starting their new season. Mm-hmm. And one of the primary ballets they're going to perform is The White Swan. And he has decided he's going to push aside the featured ballerina, who's played by Winona Ryder. This is going to be her last season. He's looking for the new premier ballerina. And he has everybody audition. And Madeline Portman wants it, wants it, wants it so badly, so badly, so badly, so badly. Okay, I don't know with that. The thing is, though, is that, how should we put it, somebody's wound a little too tight. Mmm... She really wants this role. There is the new ballerina who has started, played by Mila Kunis. Mm. <laughs> One of the things that's clever about this film is that if you look at them side by side, they look like they yeah, look they very know, yeah. similar. Yeah. And one of the things that's very clever about what Aronofsky does, because this whole film hinges on the effectiveness of Aronofsky playing the is she imagining things or is this really going on? Because he cast two people who were very close friends. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was Portman who suggested to Aronofsky that he cast Kunis, both of whom have dance backgrounds who look so alike by the way that he plays the film where you never really see the two of them interacting with other people in the ballet company. You see them interacting with other people outside, but you never see Kunis and Portman, so you can always think that this is basically her alter ego. Right. He plays that a lot, actually. He plays with that idea a lot, not only with this, but with Barbara Hershey playing Portman's mother. (laughs) In fact, there's this one scene where it's the three of them talking in the hallway of her apartment, Mm -hmm. 
And it occurred to me, this could just all be going on in her mind, because we never see, until a key point, the mother out of the apartment. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, God, this could be just the three personalities having a confab. Yeah, yeah. Cassell tells Natalie Portman, you dance beautifully as the white swan, but I need the black swan, too, and you're Mm -hmm. not the black swan. I can't feel... Your other side. And then Natalie Portman shows up in his office and does what I guess kind of sort of accounts as a seduction. Kisses him and bites him. And this convinces him to cast her. It would convince me. I thought you didn't like Natalie Portman. I know I have a reputation for inflexibility. But when I'm wrong, I'm a big enough man to admit that I'm wrong. Now, I haven't seen Black Swan yet. I have it somewhere around here on DVD because my wife said she wanted to see it. She wanted to see it, so I went and got it from Walmart. But I've been looking at some of her other movies. And I'm beginning to think that a lot of my dislike of her came from the fact it's not her fault it's just that she's miscast in some of her roles Mm -hmm. that doesn't take advantage of that she's definitely cast correctly there is an intensity to her this is the thing I think because she's usually cast either these fluffy roles or these kind of I'm so depressed roles right this role required her to bring a lot of intensity. And one of the things that Aronofsky is... Because there's a lot of body horror in this film. And one of the things that Aronofsky establishes very early on is how much punishment a ballerina puts on her body. Oh, yeah. There's a scene yeah. within the first ten minutes. And there are several key sequences that are shot on a very grainy film stock, almost like a 16 millimeter, mm-hmm. which gives certain moments of the film almost like a dreamlike quality. Mm-hmm. Where Portman is taking off her clothes mm-hmm. and... You see that her feet are just wrecked. And she pulled mm-hmm. a toenail out of her foot because it's all damaged. Yeah. By establishing how much punishment they put early on, it makes all these, is it really happening or is it not, hallucinations that she's having. Mm-hmm. Where she's imagining her feet merging into a webbed construction. Or she starts hallucinating that she has feathers growing out of her back. Which is also telling because Mila Kunis has a tattoo of a pair of wings on her back. Aronofsky's his script is very clever here in that it's not until the very end that we get the answer we need. Oh, okay. That's yeah. what shit is. <laughs> it is very obvious from watching this film that Aronofsky not only admires Dario Argento because there's a number of sequences that are very Argento. There's a sequence in a hospital where Portman goes to visit Ryder who has gone into a terrible accident and Ryder does something very bad to herself. Okay. Which is right out of Argento's playbook. Well, that's what everybody's been yeah. telling me, because when I first saw it, it looked like a ballet movie, yeah. and I said, well, I'm not particularly interested in that. I said, Oh, it's a horror movie. I said, well, because it's Aronofsky, yeah. I'll probably wait till it comes on DVD, but everybody's telling me, no, 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 man, listen, it's not a, it's a horror movie. It's it is really? definitely a horror movie. And everybody said, it's a horror movie. They said, if this had been made 20, 30 years ago, it would have either been an Italian giallo movie. It's the best Argento movie Argento never shot. I got you. But not only that, I think Aronofsky is getting his Roman Polanski on here I've heard well. that comparison been made too that is because there are Roman Polanski there are a couple of sequences that to me reminded me a lot of Repulsion and The Tenant those psychological movies he did in the late 60s it's well acted throughout it's very skillfully done to the point I was questioning what Cunis was Mm -hmm. right up to the very end of the film it's not a horror movie the way most people think it's of a horror movie which is stabby stabby oh no grotesque but if you're interested in that kind of horror which 
I am. Well, to me, this is the best kind yeah. of horror and the kind that I really respond to because, to me, there's nothing more horrifying than your own mind attacking you because you mm-hmm. can't get away from it. Yeah. See, a guy with a knife, yeah, you can get away from him. Mm-hmm. You can kill him. How do you have a defense against your own mind turning right. against you? Or your own body, for that matter. Because, mm-hmm. like, David Cronenberg does a lot of that horror stuff where it's your own body attacking you. Yeah, so that type of horror, to me, is much more powerful than Stabby Stabby. It, it fascinates me that Aronofsky, I don't think he's done the same film twice at this point. No. Now, like, the movie that I've mentioned a couple of times, mm-hmm. The Drug Requiem for a Dream. To me, that's a horror movie. That shit kept me up for two nights after yeah. I saw it. And movies don't do that to me. But this movie mm-hmm. affected me on such a level that, wow. If you let kids who are 12 years old watch that movie, I guarantee they probably never yeah. touch drugs in their life. Mm-hmm. See, that's the type of movie they should be showing the kids. Yeah. Here, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they'd have to cut out the last 10 minutes. Yeah. Hey, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I know about. what you're oh, talking okay. about. Maybe don't show those scenes. Mm-hmm. And yes, for those of you who are interested in the period, there's no out-and-out nudity, but there is a scene where, depending upon how you interpret the film, Natalie Portman gets off in a very, very personal way mm-hmm. on imagining her getting off with Mila Kunis. All right, I'm there. My friend Blade Braxton likes to put it, mm-hmm. that girl from that 70s show going down on Queen Amidala. Right. What's not to like? I'm telling you, I'm going to find that DVD and let me, right after you leave yeah. and I'm watching, I'm watching that shit. Uh, tangent about Mila Kunis, who I'm beginning to like more and more every time I see oh, her. Oh, I love her. A couple of weeks ago when I went to see Sucker Punch, which we're not going to cover this time, folks, because we're doing a special yeah, director's Go ahead and finish it, and yeah. then we're going to We're doing a that. special director's court on Zack Snyder, and we're going to have a special guest, the man who talked about the manliest movies ever made during our 100th episode, Mr. Joel Mangum. Okay. They had a coming attraction for a film called Friends with Benefits. To me, it was obvious that it was one of these films that was probably done at the same time has no strings attached. Yeah. That was... With Ashley Kutcher and, and, uh, and Natalie Portman. No second time was Natalie Kutcher, which proved to me that that was a science fiction film. Yeah. I want to see this movie because as much as the trailers for No Strings Attached repelled me, there's something about Mila Kunis and the way that she carries herself that puts me on her side Yeah, very easily and makes me want to see this movie. And on top of that, from what I can tell, it's a PG-13 film, so we're not going to see any hardcore nudity, Mm -hmm. but there's going to be lots of Mila Kunis running around in her underwear. For me, (laughs) well, I loved her in that 70s show, of course. Because to me, it was always a toss-up who was hotter, her or Laura yeah, Lauren, yeah, I kept going back and forth. But then she easily stole forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah. For me, she was the one that stole it. To me, there's just something about, remember the scene where her and the guy, they're in the bar and they get it drunk, yeah. telling her about... You Jason know, Siegel. Jason Siegel, he's telling her about the Dracula musical, and, yeah. she, and she gets him to go up on stage. And then he's trying to explain his way out of doing it, and there's a silence, then you hear her say, Dracula! Yes. <laughs> it's something about the way she says it. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Dracula! Yes. The more I see of her in movies... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like her. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. She's wonderful. It's funny that she's the one that seems to be have the most sustained career. Yeah, Laura Prepon seems to just disappeared off the radar screen completely. Every once in a while, I see her name connected with a small indie film. I think that's a conscious choice, though, on her part. You know what the biggest mistake she made was? I saw her on some show. Dying her hair? Yeah. She... I don't know if it's because I'm getting old. I'm beginning to have an appreciation for redheads I've never yeah. had before. Welcome to the club, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Know what I was watching the other night? What? And I said, oh my God, you know something? She's really hot, and I never noticed her before. Mm-hmm. On news radio, Vicki Lewis. The thing I adored about Vicki Lewis when that show was being broadcast on NBC... Mm-hmm. 
was that she was not attractive. In the original sense, yeah. she was hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. H-A-W-T. Yeah, hot. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking, I said, what? I said, and I've seen New yeah. I remember that. But I just never noticed her before. Yeah. And I said, oh my God. You, you look at her, you just look at a picture. Probably because right? yeah. I was looking at yeah. Candy Alexander most right. of the time. Yeah. yeah, that was the thing I used to absolutely go nuts about for her because there was something about the way she carried herself that she didn't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. And you knew that she would be a dirty, dirty... The Sarah Silverman effect. Yeah. I told you the other day I was re-watching Greg the Bunny because I had the DVD set. Mm-hmm. And it's a fascinating little show because you wonder how it ever got on television in the first place. Right. Sarah Silverman was always amazingly, impossibly gorgeous. Oh, yeah. But it's not just that she's absolutely beautiful that makes her part of the Hottie Hall of Fame that we've never installed. It's the fact that you always get the sense that she's a very, very... Very naughty girl. I would say that. Yeah. To quote Josh Whedon, she would do the weird stuff. But I don't know what it is. In the last year or so, I've become... Okay, previous before this, the only redhead I really ever paid attention to and that I really thought was really hot was Annette O'Toole. And, of course, then I saw... And Ann Margaret. And then I saw, like, Julianne Moore and all these other... And Laura Prepon on that 70 show. I said, what? Redheads are hot. (laughs) The thing that impressed me about Julianne Moore is that, like Renee Russo, she's a sex symbol who became a sex symbol in her 40s. Yeah. She had to yeah. spend a couple of years growing into her looks right. for people to start noticing that, wow, she's Same gorgeous. Thing, yeah, and that's a good point you made with Nader Russo, because people didn't really start noticing her until Lethal Weapon yeah. 3. And she was in her late 40s mm-hmm. then. She wasn't a young chick. So, Black Swan. Black Swan, definitely recommended. Okay. Very, very strongly. Not like the next film we'll talk about, but we'll get to that later. Okay. Your turn, sir. Yes, and the one that I've got, the one that I want to tackle, movie that me Patricia would see last week. She wanted to see it, actually. Yeah. I had seen the trailers. I wasn't so hot about seeing it. Now, this is directed by the guy who did Moon, right? Yeah. That's when I wanted to see it. Because I really like Moon. That guy, he's the son of... Zappa. Well, that's Zappa. Well, his name is Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones. Because, of course, David Bowie was originally David Jones. Yeah. And he directed Moon, Mm -hmm. which starred Sam Rockwell. Right. And I like to tell people who've never seen it that it's the best Stanley Kubrick movie Mm -hmm. Stanley Kubrick never made. And if you've never seen it before, folks... Please, yeah. go out after you finish listening to this. I think it's on Netflix, I believe. Yeah. That. It's not streaming. you got to get the disc. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it's well worth watching. Now, in this one, the one we're going to talk about, Source Code, Jake Gyllenhaal. The movie starts out, he wakes up, he's on a train. Who oh. is still insisting that he's going to be an action star, apparently. And we'll get to that. Okay. Let me do the synopsis first, and then we're going to get into mm-hmm. that. He wakes up on a train. Boom. Yeah. He looks around. He's sitting across from this beautiful girl, Michelle Monaghan. It's apparent from the way they're interacting yeah. that the girl knows him, but she's calling him this other name mm-hmm. and he's telling her well I don't know you what am I doing on this train and he looks in his wallet and it's another guy's ID so he goes to the bathroom to try to get himself together he goes in and he looks in the mirror and a la Quantum Leap he sees the guys in the wallet face looking back at him so now he goes back to the girl he's freaking out he's saying what have you done to me and what's happening what's going on and while all this is going on the train blows up come on he wakes up again Huh. And he's inside this weird metal capsule with all these blinky little lights. Oh, and he finds himself on the set of Seven Days. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. You know where I'm going with this. Yes. I'm going to get to that. Let me get through this. He wakes up. So on a computer screen in front of him, there's an army captain right. who's played by Vera Farmiga. 
Captain okay. Goodwin. And she's saying, did you find the bomb? Did you find the bomb? She says, what bomb? What are you talking about? What am I doing in here? What am I? She said, well, your assignment was you were supposed to go and find the bomb and get the right. bomb. What? what? I don't know what you're talking about. And she's asking him all these questions. And he's trying to get a handle on what's going on. And in the background, there's a guy called Dr. Rutledge, played by Jeremy Wright. Right. Who we know most recently from the James Bond movies. And right? Felix Light. And Peoples. And, yeah, and Peoples. Peoples. They call that Peoples. <laughs> you can't have Peoples. <laughs> She's the creator of this project that is called the Source Code. Right. What this is, it's a mashup of Quantum Leap yes. and Seven Days. Whereas they can send your mind back into right. somebody else's body, but only for eight minutes at a time. Now, the bombing on this train is only the lead-in to a dirty nuclear bomb that's going to go off in Chicago. So they keep sending this poor asshole back in time to relive this eight minutes yeah. over and over and over and over. There's no telling how long he's been doing this, right. but they keep telling him you're getting closer every time. But he keeps going back, keeps going back. To get these clues that he needs to find the bomb. And he does find the bomb fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. However, during the course of this, he's talking to the girl and he's falling in love with her. So now his mission has changed. He can't just save the train. He wants to save her life, right. too. That's the movie. Mm-hmm. That's it. Now, the good part about this movie. Yeah, there's a little bit of element of suspense in this. Is that you're wondering, because they touch on briefly one thing that is my favorite theory of time travel. That you're not actually going back into the past. You're going into an alternate dimension. Right. And they actually touch on this, that he's actually creating divergent timelines yeah. every time he goes back mm-hmm. that branches off. So he's really not going back, per se, into his own timeline and changing right. it. It's other timelines he's changing. So it's a little bit thought-provoking in that, and I like that. And Jake Gyllenhaal, he could be action star. Right. I've seen this, and I've seen Prince of Persia, and I think he could do it. He just hasn't found the right vehicle right. yet. It's interesting that you touch upon Seven Days and also Quantum Leap. Now, somebody in this movie must have said people are going to think we're doing Quantum Leap because Scott Bakula, he does a voiceover in this. He plays <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal's father. Okay. And Jake Gyllenhaal has a couple conversations with him, and I'm listening to him and said, wow, I know that voice. And then... At the end of the credits, at the very end, yeah. this is the very last name. Because they figure people are going to run out right. of the credits and they're not going to pick up yeah. on it. What's bad about this movie? It's the same thing over and over again. Because, yeah. of course, since he's going back to relive the same eight minutes, he goes back. He wakes up. He knows a woman's going to come by and spill coffee on him. He yeah. knows this guy's going to do this. He knows this. Is- so we have to relive these scenes over and 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 it's not that there's anything really wrong with the movie, but I would suggest that if it's still in the theaters by the time this goes out, which I seriously doubt because there weren't that many people yeah. in the theater that I went to see it. Okay, at home, if you have the DVD, you can at least fast forward through the slow parts and get to what you really want to see. But after Moon, this for me was a disappointing follow-up. I recommend Moon highly enough. I believe I've even probably reviewed it yes, sometime in the past. If I can remember correctly, you reviewed it on... That episode. Okay. Yeah, but this one, the production values is good, special effects are excellent, but it's just a movie that's best suited for a rental. Wait till it comes to Netflix. But we know that Mr. Jones will probably get another film. Oh, he should, because he's a good director. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with the movie technically. I think that it, it suffered from the fact that the impression I get is that this is more of a big-budget film, that they brought him on. They already had the script, and they already had the proper... I probably think so. This seems much more, because Moon was...
wasn't really major. Yeah, it wasn't a thing. Yeah. yeah, I think that they brought Jake Gyllenhaal along and said, "Listen, well, we got this thing for you. You think you might be interested in it?" And he did it because I don't know. It just wasn't. There are some interesting things in it with the thing with the parallel time tracks, and also every time he goes back inside the source code, right. he goes back in, inside that capsule. It's always different, which yeah. kind of makes you start thinking. Well, is all this happening in his head? Because one time he's inside of it and he's shivering because there's ice on the inside, and they yeah. never explain why it's that. Another time he goes back in, it's much bigger than it was before. Yeah. He's lying on the ground and he gets up. What's going on? Another time he goes back well, and he's in it, and the walls are actually changing shape around. Around him as he's talking, so it's that element also that this just might be all in his mind, right? Or it could be that every time he returns, he returns to a different timeline again, going back right. And because different timelines, they might have come to this technology in different ways, right? Is that thing that plays in it too? Then you find out also that his last memory was that he was in Afghanistan because yeah. he's in the army himself, and he was in a helicopter gunship, and the gunship went down. Is this his dying hallucination? See, his old theory is that this is some sort of training exercise, and that's how he treats it for a while because he doesn't believe it's real. Now he said, "Oh, this is some kind of psychological virtual training." Center. And the movie plays with that for a while. The movie gets a lot more mileage out of what the possibilities could be of the situation that he's in, rather yeah. than the actual situation. situation of the bomb. It actually deals with that more than so. If you like that type of psychological head game, it gets into that in a bit. And that, to me, was more interesting than bomb is on a train. Okay, fine. Then he finds the bomb, and he finds the bomb fairly quick into the movie. But then it's him trying to discover exactly what this is about, and him falling in love with this girl. And he only has eight-minute increments to do all of this. Yeah. So I think that they thought that just that was going to be suspenseful enough. It's wash, rinse, repeat. It's the same thing over yeah. and over and over again. And you could have probably got away with a movie like this back in the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s when audiences had more patience with a movie. But this one, I don't think a lot of people say, ah, listen, he just did this. Let's go on to yeah. something else. That's source code. Okay. And what you got for us now, my friend? It's time to finally put to bed the Green Hornet. I did not pay for this. I want it on record. This is something I used one of my mom's gift cards that she gave me. Okay. Because I was not going to pay my own money. Now let me ask you something. Yes. When the movie started, did they use the Green Hornet opening? No. Well, then it was not a good movie. Oh, no. no. Oh, how did we begin? His aide, Kato. They're rolling Arsenal, the black beauty. Now, see, how could you not use that opening? Oh, my Throughout this film, I kept having this same thought. What? They threw away the Kevin Smith treatment for this. Now, I know that Kevin Smith walked away from the project, so please don't get on my case again, Dino. But he did write a treatment for the film. And the treatment was then used as the basis for a comic book, book, which is called Kevin Smith's The Green Hornet. This movie is a unholy mess. It seems like Seth Rogen's only previous experiences with the Green Hornet was watching that small sequence in Dragon, Mm -hmm. the Bruce Lee story. The Bruce Lee story, yeah. Because his whole take on Britt Reed is based entirely around that. Britt Reed in this film is a goofus, and he never becomes anything more than a goofus. He is incompetent, he is playing everything as if it's a big game, and Jay Chow, who plays Kato, seems to have come from another unit. Maybe he was using the source code machine and came from an alternate timeline where the Green Hornet was actually a good movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but this is a movie yeah. that plays on the thing that, much like Big Trouble in Little China, yeah. the guy who's nominally the sidekick is actually the hero. Yeah. And the guy who's supposed to be the hero is the bumbling sidekick. The problem is not with Seth Rogen, although his 
performance is not good. Mm -hmm. Or with Michelle Gondry, although it's the most subdued Michelle Gondry I've ever seen. Although, every once in a while, the Michelle Gondry I know and love pops out, and there's a weird sequence. For example, there's a scene where Marie brings home a girl from one of his latest parties this Mm -hmm. early on, and he proceeds to fuck her in every one of his dad's vintage cars in super fast motion. And I'm like, this doesn't belong here. It's a script. It starts with the script. It's one of these scripts where not only are they aware of the deficits, they point them out. They point them out. Throughout. Right. Because at one point, for example, towards the end where Britt talks highly of his dad and Cato turns to him and says, but you said your dad is an asshole. And he says, yeah, well, he still is an asshole, but I understand him better. But you understand, yeah. I mean, I don't even want to talk about the plot. Well, is there a plot? There is a plot. The guy from Inglourious Bastards. Yes, Christoph Wall. And it makes me sad that this was his follow-up. His follow yeah, I've heard that. He plays a character called Chudnovsky. And he has a gun with two barrels. And his whole shtick is he's very image conscious. Because in the first scene, he comes into this big, ritzy nightclub to explain that he's the person who's in charge of Los Angeles's crime. And he's expecting a cut from this guy who's setting up shop as a new drug kingpin. The guy says, look at your fucking stupid suits, look at this, and you're stupid. Proceeds to then make short work of him. But he gets all and more and more kind of worried about his image as the Green Hornet goes and causes a lot of trouble. Maybe his organization decides to become a supervillain called Bloodnovsky. And there are just so many problems. The casting of Cameron Diaz, who is noticeably older than either Jay Cho or Seth Rogen. Yeah, I've heard that. And once again... They make jokes about it in the script. It's an old thing yeah. that most people have, and I run across this a mm-hmm. lot because people send me stuff to read, and they'll say, "Well, I know this is crap, but could you?" Well, don't tell me it's crap. But I know why people do that. They do mm-hmm. that because it's kind of like a preemptive strike. If they say, "Okay, well, this is bad," then if you say it doesn't hit them yeah. as hard because they've already said it. I get it's the same thing with this movie. They say, "Okay, we know this is crap. We're telling you it's and crap." It, what's more, it totally and absolutely discards something that's very integral to. The Green Hornet idea, which is that it's a legacy character. Right. But the weird thing is, okay, they discard totally the legacy character aspect that mm-hmm. the Green Hornet was carrying on the tradition of the great grandfather of the earlier Reed, the Lone Ranger. Uh, the Grand Uncle. Yeah. Britt Reed is son of Dan Reed. Right. Who was the Lone Ranger's nephew. So he's the Grand nephew of the... But they still put, quote-unquote, the legacy cameos in. There's in an early scene at Britt Reed's father's place of work at the, mm. the Daily Sentinel, there's a prominent picture of the Lone Ranger. Yeah, okay. Well, see, that I could go, because yeah. even in comic books, if you read comic books, because they don't have the rights to yeah. say that it's the Green Hornet, usually if you see the comic yeah. books, there is a portrait of the Green yeah. Hornet hanging in the office, so you know this is... Or, or later on, he's looking through J. Chow's sketchbook, and there's sketches of Bruce Lee in there. Oh, okay. It's the type of film where they establish very early on that Cato loves vintage stuff, and particularly loves classical music, and yet they never, ever do the Flight of the Bumblebee except the very, 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 very end as a joke sting. First of all, The Green Hornet, the TV show, yeah. had one of the best openings of any TV yeah. show ever. You hear Al Then you see the black beauty coming out between yeah. two people kissing it. They're going all up and yeah. oh, man. See... Half of these movies, they should just reproduce the opening before the credit, just like if it was an episode from a TV show. They're all going to do, say, like, for instance, a Johnny Quest movie. Now, you know the Johnny Quest opening. Yeah. I do that in live action. Yeah. 
Dr. Horton Heat on the phone now. I would do that in yeah. live action. Yeah. Do that before the credits. And then go into the movie. Then. Yeah. Once I heard that, and that's all I had to ask people. Yeah. Did they do the opening from the TV show? Because you know my theory. If they use the theme song from the TV show, the movie's no, going to be what good. What they use is the typical Hollywood big old mishmash of hip-hop songs. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. The first time I saw the trailer with the Green Hornet doing Gangsta's Paradise, yes. I laughed. <laughs> but now, that's your soundtrack. Now, if that was a sketch on Saturday Night Live, I would have said, okay, great. But for the movie, no. But I'm not going to lie, I laughed. <laughs> the thought of the Green Hornet came up doing Gangsta's Paradise. Yeah, it, and there's not anything really I can say positive about this film. It's not so god-awful that I'm going to go off on a Tom five-minute rant about yeah. it. But it's just... It's not worth it. It's just... Okay, I'd say one positive thing about Gondry's direction. One of the few times where Gondry gets to be Gondry is in a sequence where Bloodnovsky... God, I hate that name. Puts a bounty on the... Green Hornet. And the way Gondry, it starts out as one picture. Mm -hmm. Then it starts going into increasingly smaller as you follow the way the word of the bounty is being spread throughout the Los Angeles underground. Gondry continues to split the screen Mm -hmm. into smaller and smaller bits until towards the end of that sequence, it's just like a honeycomb of all these different people being told about the bounty and people picking up guns yeah. and ready to go out hunting. The film made some money. That's what I heard. Yeah, yeah, and Sean Rogan is going around saying, you see, I knew people were going to get behind uh, it. Apparently it didn't do great business, but it did respectable yeah. business. So we've talked at great length in the past about how much we were hating this film and we were pretty much right. <laughs> and I think that's about all we need to say about this movie, other than my hope is that there is no sequel, and it goes dormant for a couple of years until Green Hornet Inc., who really, really, really want that character to go back to the public consciousness. Yeah. Finds a new way. Well, I think what in the last five years or so, we've had more Green Hornet stuff come out than in character. And this character does have a lot of popularity. Yeah. And it could be a success in the right hands. And apparently Seth Rogen's was not, not the right, right hands. hands. No. Yes. So we're back to me now, We're right? back to you. Okay. The next one on my list was... What? We, oh, yeah, you, we're gonna, as you said yes. previously, we will be doing that in a special show yes. where we're going to cover all of the, the exactly. history of Zack Snyder and address the backlash effect. <laughs> you yeah. fanboys are going to get schooled some. Oh, yes, you are. I can't hardly wait. Okay, the next one I'm going to talk about is Mm -hmm. Limitless, which was a movie that I was pleasantly surprised. I went into this movie not with a lot of expectations, but when I finally saw it, I said, this is really good. It's the type of movie that I like to call a genie movie. When I call a movie a genie movie, it goes back to the old story of a guy that finds a genie in a bottle. He lets the genie out, and the genie, of course, gives Mm -hmm. him anything that he wants. Okay, for instance, you ask the genie, give me $10 million. Boom! He gives yeah. you $10 million. But now what happens? You start spending money, and the IRS come knocking on your door. Want yeah. to know, where'd you get all this money all of a sudden? You have relatives coming out of the woodwork, begging for money. You have strangers saying, oh, my kidney's a new kidney. Mm-hmm. Could you give me $100,000 for a kidney? So you make another wish, but every wish that you make gets you into worse and worse trouble. Mm-hmm. And then you come to the part where you sort of wish the genie back in the bottle. And that's when you find you're really yeah. screwed because you can't put the genie back genie in the bottle. being outside. Yeah, genie said, no, no, I'm not going to. You get back in the bottle. Yeah. Limitless is this type of movie. We meet 
uh, a guy named Eddie, played by Bradley Cooper, who right. is a writer living in New York City. He's gotten an advance for a novel, but as you and I, we know this made right yeah. of our acquaintance. He's one of these writers that would much rather talk about the book that he's right. writing rather than actually write it. But he's coming up against a deadline. He's got to produce something or he's got to give back the advance money. His girlfriend mm-hmm. decides to dump him because he's not going anywhere. He lives like a slob. And I give Bradley Cooper a lot of credit in these right. early scenes because he's a big, good-looking guy. But he looks like a crackhead in the early yeah. scenes. His hair is unwashed and greasy. He's not shaved. He's walking stooped over. He looks like he hasn't had a decent meal in months. Mm-hmm. Okay, he runs into his brother-in-law, Vernon. They go out for drinks. They're kicking it about the old days. And Vernon has a new drug he wants him to try. Right. He said, try this. And he's talking about his problem. So Vernon says, okay, well, here, take this. And it's a clear pill. And he says, well, what is this? It's good for you. Okay, but what does it do? Man, is it going to get me high? But he said, no, it's going to make you smarter. He says, get the hell out of here. There's nothing. He said, yeah, trust me. Take this. It's a new drug. It's not on the market yet. But I'm giving it to certain people. Let them test it out. And they come back and tell me what it is. He said, it's going to make you smarter. If you were smart already, it didn't make you a super genius. You right. know, you'd be Mr. Peabody. Yeah. <laughs> no, you'd be built a way back machine. So Eddie doesn't believe a word of this. So he takes the pill. And this is when we come to the director, Neil Berger. He's got a very, very interesting visual style in this movie mm-hmm. to let you know when the effects of the pills are working. And he goes back to his apartment. He looks at it, and he starts cleaning it up. We see first there's one, two, and then there's three or four or five, mm-hmm. six Bradley Coopers all going around cleaning up the apartment. It's spotless. Then he sits down and he starts writing his mm-hmm. book. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about the interesting right. style and you being a writer yourself. And when I saw this scene, I appreciate it because it was the best visualization I've ever seen of when a writer's block is broken. He starts to type and then you see letters slowly start dropping from the ceiling slowly. And then the letters are forming words and they're coming down faster and faster. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting in a rainstorm of letters and words and the key's going like this. He finishes the damn book in two days. He takes a shower. He gets a haircut. He cleans up. He buys better clothes. He starts learning languages. He reads encyclopedias. This guy becomes so smart that Google Googles him for information. <laughs> That's how impossibly smart he gets. He starts hanging out with a better class of people. Right. He starts hanging out with rich people. He starts mm-hmm. playing the stock market well, he shouldn't have did that shit. Right. <laughs> because he makes a fortune in a week. He makes millions of dollars. And of course, you attract attention. Right. In this case, he attracts attention from Robert De Niro, who plays a businessman called Carl Van Loon. He's a legitimate businessman, but this being Rob De Niro, of course, you get the distinct impression that he's involved in a few shady things. So he throws Eddie this deal. Says, well, look at this and tell me what you think about it. And it turns out that Carl is trying to... Okay, I'm not sure if he's trying to either market a brand new energy source or if he's trying to corner the market on existing energy resources in the Middle East. But in any case, this is going to make him an extraordinarily powerful man. So he invites Eddie in on this deal. At the same time this is going on, we find out that if you don't keep taking this pill, it has very bad side effects. As we see when Eddie gets a visit from his ex-wife, who is a physical wreck. And she tells him, well, you have to keep taking the pill or you're going to die. Eddie has been taking the pill, but we get to see both ends of the spectrum. When you take too much of it, he loses two days. But apparently we see he's been running around the city because he can't go to sleep, but his mind has shut off in order to reboot. Because, of course, you know, if you don't sleep after a while, your mind has to have dream time. So in order to get that, his mind shuts down. But he's running around, and apparently he's been involved in a murder. Now, we haven't even got to the part with the 
Russian gangster show. Oh, one of whom gets a hold of the pill, and he likes it. And he actually becomes more dangerous mm. as a result of taking this pill. Limitless is one of these movies, and the reason why I love it, because movies so very rarely surprise me these days, mm -hmm. that I honestly did not know where this movie was going to go, or how it was going to end, because I was convinced this is not going to end well right. at all. Bradley Cooper, between this and the 18, I'm convinced this guy could be a star. He's got the chops, and I appreciate that for the first half hour of the movie. He presents himself in a very unflattering light. Yeah. When an actor that has his good looks is willing mm -hmm. to do that, that says to me something about him. When he's willing to not be right. attractive, the first time you see him on camera. I like the Jekyll Hyde kind of thing, because this is really a modern day kind of Jekyll Hyde story. Because when he turns to the handsome, smart guy, he's going through this little crisis thing where he has to contemplate going back to being what he was. And that's when he starts doing some really yeah. unsavory things in order to stay the person who he is. Doesn't make him likable in some of the scenes, but you are fascinated with what this guy is going through and you want right. to watch and you want to see what happens. Limitless, I don't know how this movie did in the theaters, if it made its money back, I don't care. Folks, if you haven't seen it yet, when it comes on Netflix, by all means, get a hold of Limitless and watch it. Remember, one of the best movies I've seen so far this year. Really, right. and You know me. For me, that's saying a lot. This is one of the best, if not the best movie I've seen 2011 so far. That's how much I enjoyed Limitless. And we throw it back to you. Okay. We're going to talk about a film which I think wanted to be called... Remember that film you liked a couple of years ago called Taken? Oh, yeah! Well, here's another film just like it, only it's not. As a matter of fact, Taken was one of our favorite films. Yes. Of, what was it, last year? It was about two years ago. Okay. years ago. This is Unknown. Which oh, is Liam Neeson. Starring Liam Neeson. Who was in Taken? You liked Taken, didn't you? I remember seeing the poster for this. Yeah. And the poster looks just like the poster for Taken. Oh, yeah. No, it's obvious from the ad campaign is basically to remind you. I've got the poster up here right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's just to remind you further. You remember that movie, Taken? <laughs> it was a good movie, right? Yes. You liked Taken, didn't you? Yes. And also, it's set in Europe. Yes. It's a thriller. Only, it's not set in Paris, but it's set in Germany, which is almost the same thing, right? And you like Paris, didn't you? You like Paris, right? <laughs> yeah. I can see the theme we're going with. Yes. Here. Neeson plays Dr. Martin Harris, okay. who is going to Germany to speak at a special symposium run by, they don't say which Middle Eastern country he's from, this very progressive sheik by the name of Prashada. He's traveling with his wife, a wax statue. I mean, I'm sorry, January Jones. Oh, God, that broad. What do people see in this woman? I have nothing against the woman. I don't know her personally. I'm not yeah. like you. I don't take it personally against these people. I don't know her except for Mad Men. However, I cannot see where she is this raving beauty that people keep claiming that she is. As a matter of fact, to me, she's kind of ordinary looking, yeah. actually. So, they go into this symposium. They check into their hotel. Neeson realizes that he left one of the pieces of luggage back at the airport. Okay. So he tells his wax statue to get settled, and he's going to go back to the airport to get said piece of luggage. He hails down a cab that is driven by Diane Kruger, who was last seen by us in Inglorious Bastard. On the way back to the airport, there is an accident. The cab falls into the river. Mm -hmm. Neeson, due to injuries, goes into a coma. He wakes up three days later, goes back to the hotel to see his wife and his wife's husband, mm -hmm. who also is Dr. Martin Harris and is played by Aidan Quinn. 
And he's like, that's not me. I'm me. I am me. I know I'm me. I've been me all my life. He's got no proof, though. Yes, he has no proof because, of course, he lost the wallet in the accident. Uh, well, of course he did. So he goes off. He tracks down the cab driver. And the cab driver hooks him up with the character of Ernst Jurgens, played by Bruno Gantz, mm. who, if this movie was about Ernst Jurgen, mm -hmm. I would have liked a whole lot better. It would have been a more interesting movie. Bruno Gantz, he doesn't overact, but he owns the film whenever he's on the screen. Okay. He's a former operative of the Communist Secret Police back when Berlin was divided. And there's no place for when him anymore. there was anymore. East Germany yes. and West Germany. So now he operates as an unlicensed private detective. And so he agrees to help Liam Neeson. Neeson is beginning to suspect more and more that there's something about to happen, something very, very bad at this conference. Mm -hmm. And it's somehow tied into the other him. I'm not going to go any much further into the film. Is that because it's not worth it or it would spoil the surprise? Both. Both. Oh, okay. <laughs> Both. Okay. There are a number of very big problems. One of the problems is that... That it wants to be taken. That it wants to be taken. <laughs> there is a very noticeable disconnect. Both of the female leads mm -hmm. that Neeson gets involved with. I looked this up. January Jones was 32 when this film was made. Diane Kruger is 34. Liam Neeson is 60. And it shows. Well, yeah, it showed in Taken yeah. too. But the thing is, is that Funky Johnson is in her 40s, so there's a closer... Well, that's true, too, yeah. And granted, the discrepancy between Neeson and Jones may have been, in the director's mind, mm -hmm. a clue to the ultimate resolution of the film. But it doesn't work, particularly because he starts palling around with Diane Kruger, and there is a romance between the two of them towards mm -hmm. the end of the film, which just feels creepy-icky. Diane Kruger, I get the impression she was hired because she's a German-born native. Right. But she's playing this Eastern European refugee, and she's got this weird moose and squirrel accent. Because there's a great story that yeah. she tells about <laughs> when she was going to the casting for Inglorious Bastards. Well, yeah. And Quentin Tarantino said, well, we're looking for a German actor, yeah. really. And then she starts speaking yeah. for German, and he said, holy shit, because he had no idea. Yeah. She was German. <laughs> the pacing is a little off. The thing about Taken, we refer to it as being almost a uh, video game movie in that yeah. it was yeah. yeah it kept popping this one goes and fits and starts and for every really decent there's one scene where Neeson breaks in on the other Martin as he's having lunch with a colleague mm -hmm. the colleague who got him the position to speak at this symposium and he's trying to convince him that the other Martin isn't the Martin I'm the real Martin and he and Aiden Quinn start speaking in unison because he's I can prove it to you that I know you and he starts reeling off personal facts about this other guy's life mm -hmm. and Aiden Quinn starts mimicking in perfect unison and oh. that's kind of cool one thing I did really like about this was that the director whose name is Jean Colette Serrar cast has the minor characters a lot of really interesting faces, mostly German actors, who really look like they live in this world. But the film doesn't work. There is a redemption plot going on with one of these characters that doesn't work because even though we're supposed to accept that a redemption has happened, the character acts as viciously as he would have at the beginning of his arc. Oh, okay, I got you. It's just dull, ultimately. Really? It's just a very dull kind of picture. It's kind of sad. January Jones does not work as the wife, and she has to carry like, a major plot twist. Yeah. And it falls flat because you don't believe this person could pretend to be herself. 
doesn't hold much hope for her in the X-Men first. Oh, God. My heart soared for the space of a cup of coffee where Matthew Vaughn said, yeah, I think we're going to cast Rosamund Pike. Oh, that would have been perfect. And now we're getting January Jones. But my thing is that when you were casting January Jones... Did you not even see Christina Hendrickson standing yeah. next to her? <laughs> why you would pick her? I can kind of understand why they didn't pick Christina Hendrickson, because as amazingly freaking pantstainingly hot as she is, she is noticeably older. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. if they're going for a younger X-Men staff, they needed to get... And like you said, she's only, what, 32? January Jones is 32. And yeah, she does have that ice queen quality that you would look for yeah. in uh, Emma Frost, but still... I'm living in dread of her trying to do an English accent. Who said she's going for an English accent? Well, Emma Frost is English. That doesn't mean she's going to be English in the movie. I don't want to. I don't don't sit there and act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying. I know, but it would be, I, would be, I would be disappointed if well, that was well, the case. Because, see, yeah. I don't want to go as far as some people we know, and you know who I'm looking at right now, who's like, this is an abomination. I will never see this movie because this movie. Oh, yeah, they're going to go see it. Talk. Don't pay attention to that crap when people talk. Oh, yeah. well, I'm not going to go see it. Yes, they are. They're going to go mm-hmm. see it. If for no other reason, then they have a reason to trash it later on. So people are yeah. going to see it. They may not go see it first day, but they can't stay away from it. I actually wasn't planning on seeing it until I started seeing some of the trailers. And then I said, this might not be as yeah. bad as I thought it was going to be. But yeah, I agree with you. If she's not English, then it's not Emma Frost. But you know as well as I do. And the way that they've hooked up the whole X-Men timeline anyway, yeah. as far as the movies go, at this point, nothing would surprise me. But we digress. Sadly, this is another one from this season I can't recommend. This movie was so hard to be taken, but you can only do it taken one time. And that movie took everybody by surprise, including us, was because we had never even conceived of Liam Neeson being an right. action star in that mold. And he was so amazing that that's why that movie was such a big hit. Because word of mouth spread like wildfire. You know, the other thing is about this film, I get the impression the director wants to be classier than Taken. And, once again, it doesn't work if you're going to advertise your film as being, hey, remember that film Taken? Mm-hmm. You should be just as sleazy as Taken was. Now, what I think that they're trying to do, and actually, I wouldn't mind seeing every couple of years... Liam Neeson in one of these Euro-based thrillers, yeah. because as we said, Taken really worked. Yeah. Unfortunately, this isn't Taken, but then again, like I keep saying, how many movies can be Taken? You can't be. <laughs> you know? And I would like to just say very clearly, I never want to see a scene where Liam Neeson is led into a nightclub which is blasting New Order's Blue Monday ever again. Why not? Because it just looks so bad. Oh, okay. Colored lights are flashing on Neeson's face, and he just looks so embarrassed. Oh, yeah, yeah. What the hell am I doing here? We're about five years away from being able to collect Social Security. Get this stuff out of my face. But, as we also said, mm-hmm. when we were talking about Liam Neeson in Clash of the Titans, mm-hmm. we were talking about, well, why is he in this mm-hmm. movie? My personal belief is that because he suffered the tragic yeah. loss of his wife a few years mm-hmm. back, and then that's when he really started doing like a lot yeah. of work. And I really believe he's trying to do all this to keep yeah. his mind off of the tragedy that happened. You know what's the really most frustrating thing about this film? What's that? You know how when we talked about Taken all those years ago, one of the things I liked about it was that you definitely got a sense that these characters had a life outside of the book. Oh, yeah. Nobody in this film, with the exception of Bruno Gantz's character, has a life outside of the movie. Now, granted, in the case of a couple of these characters, it's very intentional that they don't feel like they have a life outside of the movie, but it doesn't work even after that reveal has been made. So, sadly, you can't recommend... Unknown. N- unknown, no. Unknown, unknown should remain. Should, should remain. Unknown. I, I knew, see, I was trying to lead you to that. Unknown <laughs> yeah, should remain. Uh, no. okay. <laughs> what was it I talked about just now? Unknown? 
I don't remember that. You don't remember. That's how I known it is. I think I took that pill from the last film. Yeah, I think you did. <laughs> a note should be repeated. A note. Okay, so we're back to me now. And what I have for us right now. Okay, you know how we always talk mm-hmm. about the dead zone as far as yeah. movie going that exists between from January to what, March or April. And studios, they either don't want to bring out movies that they think don't have a chance of competing in the highly competitive spring and summer thing. Or you had the Green Hornet, which you just reviewed, which was originally supposed to be a summer thing, and they kept pushing it back and pushing it back, and then finally released it in January as a kind of counter-programming thing because they figured people go see it simply because there's nothing else to see. Right. And it'll make some money back. I say all that to say this, because now we're talking about Battle Los Angeles, which... I just want to say, had a really great trailer. Oh, yeah! That trailer, every time I saw it, sucked me in. You know what it was? What? It was not the visual so much as that weird atonal song. Yeah. Because it sounded like nothing else that was being shown as a trailer. It was a hell of a trailer. You see it, you say, wow, I gotta see that. Now, the funny thing about this movie is that you would expect a movie like this to come out during the summertime. Because that's what it is. It's a summer popcorn movie. Which kind of amazes me that they released it at this time of year. But then again, when I look over the schedule of movies that are coming yeah. out this summer, I understand now why they did it. Because more than likely, this movie would have got low. Especially if you put it up against something like a Thor or a Green Lantern. Or even that. something like Super 8. Yeah. Which has right. J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg behind it. Exactly. This movie would have got lost in the soil. Well, let me give you the story of okay. what it is. Okay. We've got a mm-hmm. good friend, Aaron Eckhart, who plays this movie in a wonderful way because he plays it as cliche as it is. As if you've never seen a war movie before. Mm-hmm. He's taking it as a good Well, you've never seen a war picture before, so I can do this and do that yeah. and do this and that. He's getting ready to retire. He's a staff sergeant. He's done his 20-odd years. He's getting ready to retire. He's put his papers in. And then there's reports coming in all over the country and all over the world of meteors that are splashing into the water offshore from all major cities. It's a situation that must be investigated. Yeah. So Marines are dispatched to go check it out and make sure what's going on here. And that's one thing I like about this movie is that nobody is sitting around talking about, well, what can this be? The military, you see them with all the computer screens, they said, well, from the trajectory, this isn't random. This isn't a natural event. These things are being directed mm-hmm. down there. I said, oh, good. They're playing the military as smart. Which they kind of do because this movie pretty much is a recruiting poster for the Marines. Now, is this a found footage movie? I'm going to get to that. Okay. The Marines go out there, Mm -hmm. and I'm not telling you anything that you didn't get from the trailers. Of course, it's uh, aliens that are the spaceships inside the meteors. And they come out, and they start blasting the hell out of everybody. They're not interested in taking prisoners. They just start exterminating people. And they start setting up beachheads and camps, and they start taking the cities one by one by one by one by one. And, of course, our army is fighting back. The army is all over the world. And you see the Eiffel Tower falling over, and you see the pyramids being blown up, and you see shit is just happening everywhere. So Aaron Eckhart is pressed back into service. They said, well, every good Marine must do his duty. So he said, okay. So he hooks up with this other platoon, and what they're going to do is that they're going to go into Los Angeles. There's a bunch of civilians that's holed up in the Los Angeles police station. They're going to go, and they're going to bring them back, because the decision has been made to just completely level the city of Los Angeles with bombs. These aliens are tough. They're not invulnerable. You can shoot them, but like most movie aliens, it takes a whole clip of bullets to put them down. Aaron Eckhart goes with this platoon, and it's very cliche. You could just 
ticking off one right after the other. You have the green lieutenant who's never been in combat before. You have the guy who his wife is expecting. So it's very Independence Day. Yeah, but with none of the big stars. Because except for Aaron Eckhart and Michelle Rodriguez, there's nobody else in the movie that I really recognize. Well, for me, I will always have a soft spot in my heart for Bridget Moynihan. Yeah, she's in this movie. For a reason that has nothing to do with her movies. I'm quite sure it does. (laughs) No, it's not even that she's an attractive woman. It's that when she gave birth to the fucking crybaby quarterbacks, Uh baby, after he dumped her while pregnant, she decided she was going to call his son, J.E.T. Moynihan. Why is it that you people always get caught up in the personal lives of these people and insist on intermingling them with their professional Because, Derek, what is the one of the few things that but people know about But what a person does me? in their personal life has nothing to do with their professional. Just on Facebook the other day, it was some woman that was on there. Yeah. She was complaining about, I think it was Warren Ellis' wife. She hated Warren Ellis because of his wife. Well, his wife doesn't write the books. He does. What is who he's married to got to do with what he does? He's got to deal with his wife, not you. Yeah, I just don't like the crybaby quarterback because he's on the opposite team. When you say stuff like that, it makes me glad I don't follow football. (laughs) It really does. And somewhere David Swig is going, oh, God, he's talking shit about them again. (laughs) Because we're now in the good side. Well, we can. Baseball season started, so, of course, Dave is my bestest buddy again. Yeah, yeah. Because I backed the Red Sox. Now, here's where we get into the found footage stuff. Up until the point where we have the combat, the movie's been shot in Mm -hmm. a pretty conventional thing. Director puts the camera down, puts the actors in front of it, let them act. Then we get to the battle scenes, and we get this goddamn shaky cam, which I can't stand. Because, so help me, they get into firefights where you swear that the whole platoon has got wiped out. But then when it's over with, you see that they may have lost one or two Mm -hmm. members, and they pick up some other people. This is where they pick up Michelle Rodriguez, because her platoon has got wiped out, and she just hooks up with them to make up some of the casualties that they have. But the battle scenes are shot so incoherently. Not that I'm complaining, mind you, but what is it about Michelle Rodriguez that they refuse to let her be in anything unless she's carrying a gun? There's only two roles that they will let Michelle Rodriguez play. The pissed off Latina mm-hmm. who's got bigger balls than any right. man that's in the movie. Or the really pissed, pissed off Latina, Latina who <laughs> proves that she's got bigger no, balls than yeah. When you give her a role where she can act and she can smile, she has a wonderful yeah. smile, but they won't let her I, smile. It amazes me when I hear people talk about how they think she's ugly. I'm, no! you looking at the same woman I'm looking no, at? No, she's far from... But the thing is, is that she gets these roles yeah. that call for her to be mad all the yeah. time. And that's how they see her. But if you see a smile, she has a wonderfully delightful well, it's like like, as much as I really couldn't stand the cape, one of the reasons I continued watching was because Summer Glau got, smi- yeah. got to have a good time for a She shame. got to smile. And when she smiled, my God, she's got a gorgeous smile. Yeah, I mean, Michelle Rodriguez is just one of these actresses. Mm-hmm. I would love to see her in a movie where she's got to put on a dress and high mm-hmm. heels and smile. But yeah, but in this one, she's loaded down like 100 pounds a gear. Yeah. She's carrying a gun that's bigger than her. She's got to run around and she's She's got to blow up stuff and shoot stuff. The movie comes down to where Aaron Eckhart and his platoon, they have to go on a suicide mission. Yeah. They elect to go on this mission to blow up the command station. The aliens have excavated a huge pit, and they drop this honking big thingamabob. Right. That looks like a skyscraper of all spiky yeah. machinery, but it's a command base that controls all of the drones. 
And if they can take that out, then they can retake Los right. Angeles. Is this a good movie? I'm going to explain it's a good movie on one level, and this is why. The critics are right when they say this is a cliche movie. And I'm telling you it's a cliche movie. Mm-hmm. However, a cliche does not necessarily have to be a bad thing right. when it's done well. And that's what this is. This is the same type of movie John Wayne and Audie Murphy would make yeah. it back in the 40s. It's just that they've replaced Japanese and Germans with aliens. And that's all this is. This is a war movie. This is a movie for you to see and say, wow, I want to be one of those kick-ass yeah. Marines. It's that and it's no more. However, except for the problem I have with the battle scenes, which is done in shaky camp, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this movie. It's a perfect summer popcorn movie. People all the time tell me, oh, Derek, you're too hard in movies. I just want to go to movies and turn off my brain well, okay, this is your movie for you, and I'm recommending it to because right. I enjoyed it. And, and as we've said before, some of us actually like using our brain. Yeah, I like using my brain. Mm-hmm. The intelligence of the characters, because they don't waste 20 minutes talking, well, this can't be an alien invasion. They said, yeah, well, from the trajectory of the meteors, they're being controlled. This is an accident, and it's happening all over the world. Okay, it's an alien invasion. Right. So they go out and they deal with it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this movie when it comes on Netflix, because I don't believe it's in the theater yeah. now. By all means, Brenton and enjoy- I mean, Aaron Eckhart, always, always good. And Michelle Rodriguez, she's mm-hmm. good. And everybody is good. It's a good, solid war movie. If you like war movies, yeah. you're going to like the Battle of L.A. Okay. Next. Okay, we're going to talk about our first screener. When you're driving home today, I will give this to you so you can see it. This oh, is a okay. documentary done by a friend of mine who I knew through the Horror Writers Association when I was still a member of it, okay. Kevin Lindemuth. And he just did a documentary called The Life of Death. It's a two-hour documentary. What he did was he went to different personalities who are associated with horror. So you have Carolyn Monroe and Debbie Rashan who are actors in horror movies. You have a couple of writers like Jack Ketchum. And you have an editor in Tony Timpone from Fangoria. He even brings in a spiritual writer, a writer who writes books on religion. And he talks to them about their conception of death and how death has affected their careers. And it's mostly talking heads. Although, and this is, I think, one of the few flaws in the documentary, Lindemuth frequently intercuts the talking heads with various film clips. Now, film clips of horror movies that Debbie Rochon has been in, mm-hmm. when she's talking about her attitude about being killed off in a movie, that makes sense, but these weird shots of speeded up Times Square don't make sense to me. It's one of these films where it lives and dies on how interesting slash engaging you find the people he's chosen to talk to. In many cases, they are... Now, I've known Jack Ketchum for a long time, many, many years. Mm-hmm. So I knew that he was a good interview. There are certain, particularly Debbie Rochon, mm-hmm. and it struck me because she's considered among indie horror fans to be a real, real incredible sex symbol. And it struck me watching her, it's not just that she's attractive, and she is, it's that she's very, very, very smart, and she's not rubbing your nose in it, mm-hmm. but she's not afraid to share to show, her intelligence. Yeah, right. Because she comes off as very, very, very engaging, very fascinating. Some of the others, I don't know why R.A. Keith DeCandido is in here, except to promote his Star Trek books. 
Because every chance he gets, he starts tying in with one of his Star Trek books. Okay. And Lindemuth covers the whole thing, your childhood conception of death, how you want to die, your perception of what your legacy will be, and this sort of thing. And I like the fact that he chose not only on occupational lines, Mm -hmm. but philosophical lines. So so you have, like, you had that one, and he was actually very interesting, because... He was a religious writer who didn't hate horror fiction. He was That's a lot of religion. Yeah. Dude, they don't like he was, know, horror movies. Especially ones that have to deal, of course, with the devil and Catholic Church and religion. And, and then you get, like, like Scooter McRae, also a very interesting, engaging man who's a filmmaker, but who is also an atheist and has very strong feelings about his belief system. Now, Kevin tells me that there's one interview with it for some reason. The sound was out. Okay. Now, this was a work print, and it's probably going to be corrected when the documentary itself hits. It's going to be available through Amazon and through a couple other online stores. And when did it take for that time? Uh, it's already happened by this date. So if they go to Amazon.com yeah. and they put, put in, in the, the life of death. The life of death. Okay, folks, you got it right from the man himself. Yes. And I also have to say... That one other thing that I take away from this film is that Lloyd Kaufman is either genuinely, absolutely far gone insane, <laughs> or he is trying so hard to live up to his public image of being shot for no point other than to be shot. Then to be shot, shocking for shocking. That it's not funny anymore. There are some things that he says in this documentary, I'm like, you cannot be serious. You can't be serious, man. <laughs> But I think a lot of it depends upon your interest in the subject. The sequences he tends to use from the horror films tend to be very, very gory. Mm-hmm. So please be aware of that if you're going to watch this. But if you're interested in what is a two-hour-long philosophical discussion on the various aspects of death, this would be an interesting watch for you. Okay, I think so. Especially since a lot of people... It always amazes me how people watch these horror movies and they see people yeah. getting killed. But a lot of people, they don't want to talk about death. It's fascinating, for example, that most of these people say, that they're better adjusted because they're in the horror industry. And then you have this one one person. She's a writer, mm-hmm. and she's a professional tarot reader. And she says, once I had my child, I can't watch him anymore. I just cannot watch people get threatened and get killed anymore yeah. for entertainment's sake. It's as much as the variances between these people mm-hmm. as the similarities. That reminds me, a friend of mine, mm-hmm. we were having a talk one night, not long ago, he had a son. And he said to me, Derek, you know the really weird thing by having a child? I said, well, what? He said, it never really hit me that I was going to die until I had yeah. a child. He she said, talks about had, that as said, much. Once I had a child, he said, that's when it really hit him. You see, yeah, she talks about that, about how once she had her first child, it was brought home to her that more than the books that she wrote, mm-hmm. the fact that she spent her life trying to give people a better understanding of what the Tarot was, this is going to be her real legacy yeah. for the world. This is where she's going to live on. And I think the strength of this is that he chooses all these... It would have been very easy to choose a group of interview subjects who would have been in lockstep. Yeah. But he makes sure, and more importantly, he makes sure that even the people who might be antithetical to what he believes have interesting things to say. So it's not one-sided in any way. So if you're interested in this, it's available through Amazon and other online. And he's working to get it in Netflix and he's working to get it some festival play. Okay, well you're going to let me hold the screen up. Yes, I'll, yeah, once we'll, I'll pass it on to yeah, you. Yeah, because now that you told me about it, yeah, I'm very interested in seeing this myself. Okay, so we got one more film each to go. You want me to go first? Go first. Okay, I'll go Your first turn. this time. And this one has got to deal with the actress... That has been very controversial for both of us. The franchise killer. Now, wait a minute. Ooh, who's franchise killer? 
Who, Halle Berry? How yes, she she's the franchise killer. How does she kill a franchise? Why do you think we're getting X-Men First Class instead of X-Men 4? Because they don't want to work with her anymore because she's a whiny little bitch. Oh, we are not even going to go into that. That's, why do you think... That's a Why do you think they had to do a top-to-bottom reboot why? of the James Bond film? Because she was in the film that no, killed the franchise. No, they had already made up her mind. They were. They had, they had Once already, again, Derek... They had already made up their mind that was going to be the last James Bond movie. Or they made up their that. mind after the film no, did so poorly. No, 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 no. They're, they're Show already, me. I once again say to you, Derek, you've never shown me mind. any that evidence was, of this. this was going to be the last James Bond movie. Nah, sorry. No, they it's got not. Show me the evidence now, and I'll recant. Now, I'm not going to deny you that Halle Berry was a detriment in that movie. I believe, and we've talked about yes. this, that we've agreed on that. She had it in a contract that she was going to get as much screen time yep. as the star. Because we've never seen a co-star in a James Bond movie have as much screen time. Or maybe they just think we're paying her all this money. Yeah. We're going to have to stick her in there somewhere. All that haven't been said. And see, now, I'm not even going to comment on the next because I really don't know about yeah. that. I do know that she killed off her own franchise that she started oh, yeah. on Catwoman mm-hmm. before it even got out the gate. However, this movie that I'm going to talk about, Frankie and Alice, is interesting in that. And mm-hmm. I have always said this, and I maintain, that when Halle Berry has the right property, such as the Dorothy Dandridge right. biopic, she can't act. And in this one, Frankie and Alice, it's supposedly a true story, but I always take that with a grain of salt. But it's set during the 70s, and she plays a stripper, real stretch there. <laughs> but she suffers from disassociative identity disorder. So you it's civil. Now, I'm going to get to that. What happens is that she'll black out. she wake up, and there's been weird things going on. She can't pay her rent on time because she's writing out checks that she has no remembrance of signing. She looks in the closet. She's got different dresses, and she's got different wigs. She has a blackout. This is all sounding very eerily familiar to me, because this is the behavior that Jenny used to evidence. Really? I'm serious. Okay, I'd be talking to her on the phone, right? Yeah. I swear to God, she'd start drifting off. And then there would be this moment of silence. Honey? Mm -hmm. Jen? Jen, are you there? And then one of her other personalities would emerge. Well, see, that's what happens with Halle Berry's character. Her character, she invites this guy that works in the club. She works and invites him back to her house. And just to get ready to make love, that's when she has one of her fugue states. Yeah. And she hits the guy, she knocks him unconscious, and she runs out into the street. She's taken to the hospital, and she runs into, and I swear this is the name of the character, Dr. Oz. Played by Stella Skarsgård, of all okay. people. He's in this one. Matt Frewer is in this one mm-hmm. as well. So it's a nice cast. It turns out that she's got these two different personalities. Right. One is genius, which is a seven-year-old child who is a genius. Mm -hmm. When she's in that personality, she wears glasses. She speaks using words and vocabulary that her core personality has no knowledge of. She's talking about higher physics. But it's the other personality, Alice, that's really the really weird one. Because that's the personality of a southern woman who's a rampant racist. Now... Frankie doesn't know about these other personalities, but Alice knows about Frankie. And Mm -hmm. Alice wants to get rid of Frankie so that she can live because she talks about how much she doesn't like black people and how she hates being stuck in this black body. And all of this comes about as a result of this very traumatic event that happened to Frankie when she was a child and with the help of her mother, Felicia Rashad, who also has some dark secrets of her own. She finally gets to understand why she has these alternate personalities. Now, as much as we've talked about Halle Berry, and see, as always, Tom, I tell you, there's a lot of things she do that I don't like, but I gotta be honest. This is an excellent performance. 
She's very respectful and honest with the material. She plays the three different personalities as three separate characters, honestly. It's not just Halle Berry Mm -hmm. doing a riff on a southern white woman or a riff on a child genius. She's playing a child genius. It makes me wonder if this might be the first time she's acknowledged that she's a biracial woman. Yeah. Because this is a film that she could take advantage of the fact that she has her. She refuses to acknowledge it in public, but her mother is white. Yeah, her mother is white, yeah. She plays a child genius with the appropriate body language of a child and when she plays this woman you can see she's playing a separate character it's a wonderful performance and it says a lot about maybe she's playing a schizoid because she really is one in real life yeah because she's in utter crap like some of the other things that we've seen her in or she's an egotist in other movies when she's got a hog the yeah. movie and in this one she's very generous towards Stella mm-hmm. Skarsgård and Matt Frewer and Felicia Rashad right as far as acting goes letting them have their scenes and not trying to overact and mm-hmm. get in their way of what they're doing and as a result it makes the whole thing a lot stronger. Right. If you guys haven't seen this movie yet, and if you don't like Halle Berry, you're probably not going to want to go see it anyway. But if you're on the fence about her, this is a movie that I can recommend wholeheartedly. Frankie and Alan. I went into it like this. I got yeah. my arms folded, folks. I got a mm-hmm. sour look on my back. I was like, eh, yeah, fucking Halle Berry. But by the end of the movie, I was like this. Yeah. This is a good movie. That's the basis that I recommend it. It is a good movie. Right. To me, it's very disappointing because it shows me what Halle Berry could be right. doing. With her time and her talent, rather than the crap that she's been yeah. pulling and the shenanigans that she pulls on the sets of movies to try yeah. to get more time. So for our final movie, is a movie I saw yesterday. A movie that I decided to see solely on seeing <laughs> the trailer before Sucker Punch. Okay. Which was very expertly and skillfully done. This looks like it's going to be actually pretty fun. You know, I actually saw the trailers yeah. first myself, and I said, it looks like something I might want to see. Yeah. I'll tell you the, the it scene. It looked like a raunchier version yeah. of The Princess Bride. That's Funny you bring that up. The thing that won me over was the little snippet of Zoe Deschanel and Justin Thoreau, who mm-hmm. plays the villain, Lazar. And she goes, you're horrible. Why would anybody want to be with you? Gee, I don't know. Oh, wait. Now, yes, I do. I live in a castle. I'm very rich, and I can do magic. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be with him. And the way that Thoreau kind of, like, looks over at her, like, dumbass. Yeah, right? So I was, like, thinking, this is actually looks like it's going to be kind of fun. I swear to you on the biography of Sam Peckinpah. Okay. (laughs) That during the two hours that this film ran, not a single laugh came from anybody who was in the theater. You're kidding. I could not make this up if I tried. There was not a single laugh, not a Twitter, not a guffaw, not anything. (laughs) Not a guffaw. It was just... Not a Tom. Nary a chuckle. Nothing. It was dead silent throughout the entire film. There was maybe about two dozen of us, it was an early show, just kind of sitting there in stunned, horrified silence. The plot concerns Thaddeus, played by Danny McBride. You know when I really wanted to see this movie? What? Since we're talking about Natalie Portman, I saw a shot of her in that bustier or whatever it is that she's wearing. I said, wow, I didn't know she Based on this film, I didn't know she had all that. (laughs) This is another film where the director knows how to take advantage of the fact that she's got this kind of cold, standoffish beauty. Because she's playing the action hero. And I think that she should do action films more. Because she's got a real taste for it and a real flair for it. She's swinging swords around and shooting arrows. And And you know, that's another thing about Natalie Portman. 
something that surprises me because somebody said, well, you must have never seen Natalie Portman do this. And apparently it was this rap she did for Saturday Night Live. And I saw that. I said, she's got a flair for rap. Dude, she did this really good rap. I knew I was in trouble. And the opening sequence starts with a book being opened. And Charles O'Shaughnessy, who played the object of Fran Drescher's affection in The Nanny, intones, Oh, yeah, okay. Throughout history, there have been tales of chivalry burnished with legends of brave knights and fair damsels. And then there's a pause. And this other, isn't one of them. No, no. And other shit. So it's about Thaddeus, who's played by Danny McBride. When we first see him, he's about to be hung by the King of the Dwarves for consorting with his wife, who is considered tall there because she's about four foot three. She's about three apples high. Yeah, exactly. And his squire, who is played by Rasmus Hardiker, has a kind of Emo Phillips for the modern age. Oh, God. You remember Emo Phillips? Yes. Hardiker's not bad. One of the weird things about this film is that Danny McBride looks like he's playing Renfair shit. And then you've got James Franco and Radimus Hardiker, who genuinely seem to want to make us believe that they're in a medieval world. There are these people that really are taking this semi-seriously. Yeah. And then there's Danny McBride who's like, look at me, I'm dressed as Oliver Platt in The Three Musketeers. Right. You know something, when I saw that's who yeah, I, he, I said, what's Oliver Platt doing in this movie? Yeah. So, he comes home after escaping from the King of the Dwarves to his father, played by Charles Dance, and his brother, Fabius, played by James Franco, comes home from their latest quest with the head of the Cyclops sicked on him by the great Lazar, the evil wizard, played by Justin Theroux. And not only that, he's liberated this virgin he had sequestered in his castle, Belladonna, played by Zoe Deschanel. And I'm saying this right now, there will never, ever, ever be anything wrong with Zoe Deschanel. Dressed up in Renfair outfits. Absolutely not. She looks like she should be dressed up in that all the time. Yeah, anyway. oh, well, she's so freaking adorable. Oh, yeah. How could you not love her? So, they're going to be married. As they're getting married, Lazar shows up himself. Because it turns out that there was this great prophecy that when the twin moons of this world eclipse each other... Why is it always a prophecy? Because it's a fantasy world. Oh, God. Fantasy worlds without prophecies. Let Nobody me guess. There's a chosen one in here somewhere. No, no. When the twin moons eclipse each other, okay. if a wizard of great power impregnates a virgin, the virgin will give birth to a giant dragon under the wizard's control, and the wizard will be able to take control of the entire land. Kind of really complicated way of yes. taking over the land, but hey, what? And Lazar kidnapped Belladonna at birth to breed his own virgin. Good way to make sure that you get a, yourself a virgin. Yes. <laughs> So, Shades of Rapunzel. Fabius is about to go forth on the quest to retrieve his wife. Okay. Charles Dance has the king, has had enough of Thaddeus' shit, and says, you either go on this quest with your brother or your band. And they go on the quest. And hijinks happen, and they hook up with Isabella, played by Natalie Portman, who, like I said, is having a ball. Okay. And they're going forth to find the Sword of Unicorn, which is the only thing that can kill Lazar, and save Belladonna before Belladonna is... Becomes impregnated by the wizard and gives birth to a dragon. dragon. Which I'm guessing would not be a good thing for Belladonna. Although at one point, there's a scene where Belladonna's going, how do you know that you're the one who gets to control the dragon? Maybe I get to control the dragon. He says, I don't think that's possible. (laughs) In a ceremony that that Lazar unfortunately has to refer to as the fucking. And this is the major problem with the film. And this is why this film will disappear into the popular culture aether in about two years, mm-hmm. whereas The Princess Bride will still be talked about oh, yeah. for yeah. years to come. Namely that this film is 
totally bound into the idea that comedy has to be about grossness and uncomfortableness Mm -hmm. and unpleasant subjects. And dick and fart jokes. And dick and fart jokes. And apparently also really gross special effects. For this light farce, there's a lot of blood and gore in it. To the point where it's really kind of off-putting. Yeah. Either it's supposed to be one or the other. It's supposed to be a light, frothy comedy fantasy or it's going to be a hardcore Lord of the Rings type of And it wants to be kind of both, and it fails at being either. Well, like we said earlier, because when I saw it, I Mm -hmm. said, okay, well, this is another one. Kind of like the movie we got a few years back, Stardust. That one is so hard to be Princess Bride. It didn't end up... To be fair, Danny McBride wrote the script, and he does actually create a credible character arc for Thaddeus. To the point where, after he's gone through his hero's journey and he has emerged a better person, instead of giving him the big hero moment in the climax, Mm -hmm. he has the trust that the audience is behind him now, that he allows James Franco's character to have the big hero moment. To rightly have the big hero moment, okay. Right. He finds a sort of unicorn and hands it over to Franco Mm -hmm. to let him do the killing. Right, the hero killing. There's so many of these jokes, and some of these are just funny weird as opposed to funny haha. Toby Jones, an actor we've praised in The Mist and in the Doctor Who episode Amy's Choice, has a role in this and there is a extended joke scene around the fact that he literally has no dick. But the way they present it with him prancing around naked without any genitalia is just weird. It's not funny. It's established early on that the reason Fabius cut off the head of the Cyclops and is displaying it in the castle even though it's kind of gross is because every good quester has to take a trophy of every creature he kills. I do. So when Thaddeus (laughs) kills a creature and can't cut off its horn, he cuts off its dick and wears it for the rest of the film. Oh my god. You see, they're going, this is just... This is just wrong. Icky. There's just a lot of that kind of where in their attempt to be gross and edgy and it just is off-putting and uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable as a grown man to see a movie like this if I was going to go see yeah. it, which I'm not. Which you, it, you should not, yes. And it has stuff in it like this. And I'm presuming that this is also made by other grown men. I'm sorry, after a certain age, fart jokes just aren't funny. Perhaps the absolute most uncomfortable joke sequence of all uh-huh. is at the beginning of the second act, where Fabius explains their first stop is to see the wise wizard. Mm-hmm. And Fabius explains every quest you have to go see a man of knowledge who gives you information. I do. And he says, I've been visiting the wise wizard since I was a little boy. And it turns out that the wise wizard is a pervert, and in exchange for his great knowledge, expects you to jerk him off. Now see, and we get to watch. Now see, why is that funny? It's not funny. That's the thing. No, but I'm just saying. And see, folks, first of all, you got to understand. When it comes to comedy, you can't go by me. I admit, a lot of things that people tell me is hilarious and funny. And yeah. I sit there and watch it and say, I don't understand why this is funny. A comedy movie is supposed to make me laugh. Yeah. If it doesn't make me laugh, then to me, it's not working. Just like you telling me that, not only does that, that sound funny, that's something I wouldn't, wouldn't want to watch in any yeah, kind of movie. It's, it's just very strange watching Danny McBride put on a glove and reach underneath his robes and I'm ew. And presumably they had a read through of the yeah. script before they did. You mean no one no one lifted their hand and said this isn't fun. Well, see, yeah. that's why I would never work on a comedy movie because see, you know, I'm surprised gonna... nobody took Danny McBride aside and said, dude. That scene with Toby Jones naked without a penis isn't funny. Yeah, it's not funny. Because it's not. You get people like Franco and Justin Theroux and Zoe Dish, 
And some of the jokes actually, I mean, are credibly said. Like, they established very early on that Belladonna has been kept in a castle mm-hmm. her entire life. So when we see her during the celebratory feast, kind of spinning in place because she doesn't understand dancing. Now, see, that's funny. That's funny. That's funny. And Justin Thoreau has a couple of very funny lines. But every time you're getting into the film, he says that horrible phrase, the fucking and the film crashes to earth. And to me, there's nothing less funny than somebody who thinks something is funny and then they keep repeating yeah. it, hoping that if they keep saying it long enough, you'll get it. No, dude, it wasn't funny to yeah. me the first time, and, and it wasn't funny the fifth time, and it's yeah. not funny to tell. Just as an example, purely on chance, right. I was just sitting here one night and I was in a, I said, well, I want to watch a comedy. Mm-hmm. I pulled up on my thing, Dance Flick, and I okay. watched that. So help me. Didn't know anything about this movie other than it was made by Wayans. Right. I actually laughed so hard, I got a cramp in my side. That's how hard I laughed from this movie. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, that movie succeeded because it's a comedy, and damn it, I laughed right. all the way through the movie. This movie you're describing to me sounds like something I would probably go ask for my money back. Yeah. One of the major, major problems with the film is that, and Danny McBride has been funny in other films. He's but very this, funny in Tropic Thunder. Yes, he was. I was about to say that. He, and I was also about to say... From the way you describe this, and I really, except from the trailers, I didn't even read your usual yeah. ten questions because I knew you were going to talk about it, and I didn't want to have any preconceived yeah. notions before you came here and we recorded this. But it sounds to me very much like this is a vanity project. And yeah, oh, when I saw that he wrote it during that really awful credit sequence, which is set up like a storybook of him running away, and you see naked chicks. And at no point do you believe that, as much as, because you get the feeling that Fabius and Belladonna and Lazar had lives before this film started. Right. And I'm amazed that Franco, you figure this is the type of film where, you figure this is the type of thing where he would sleepwalk through. But he's given it his all, and he seems to be having fun. And Portman, I'm telling you right now, Portman should do action movies. I may watch this when it comes to Netflix just for Portman. She's the only one I've heard good things about this movie. They say she's easily the best thing that's in the movie. There is a gag about her that ends up being the film's final sting. But it works because it's extremely subtly, extremely subtly set up during the second act where there's a sequence of them watching her bathing. And that pays off at the very last scene of the film. Okay. There's something to McBride as a writer because he understands the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Unlike Seth Rogen who even though he keeps telling us in the Green Hornet that Britt Reed has had a hero's journey, he never does. I got you. Thaddeus goes through a transformation where he begins to respect and understand what his brother goes through and begins to respect and understand what it means to be responsible for a kingdom. It's just that it's lost in all this just weird. None of this is really funny funny. It's funny weird. Weird. You're saying, yo, you think they would have been better off making it a little bit more serious yeah. and a little bit more in the vein of The Princess yeah. Bride. And The Princess Bride was more whimsical yeah. than funny to me when people say, oh, well, it's a comedy film. I said, not really. There's this sequence towards the end of the second act after he's had his transformation where you see him walking through this town where he was behaving like an ass about 15 minutes before and going up to somebody that he wronged, you don't hear the dialogue. It's McBride doing this narration about, I understand now. I understand what my brother was always saying. Mm-hmm. And you see him approaching this big barbarian that he wronged it's earlier. Big barbarian type and just talking to him and the guy gets up and shakes his hand and you see that there's a definite difference in the bearing of 
Thaddeus has a person. Of course, what happens is that this character then is thrown away in a terrifically bloody and violent way, has a gag that doesn't work. But it's obvious that he understands how to write a good script. This just isn't it. Mm-hmm. It was painful. Now, a dozen people in a movie theater and not one person laughs, yeah, there's something wrong with the movie. Not a single laugh. We were just all sitting there going, he got money for this? Yeah. It's amazing what people get paid for, isn't it? Yeah, I knew that it was going to be kind of gross because, of course, it's the Pineapple Express guy who directed it. And, unfortunately, there's no room in big screen Hollywood these days for just funny. It's got to be edgy. But this was just, what the fuck was I watching? Yeah, instead of just concentrate on just being funny which is becoming rapidly like a lost okay that being said I would pay to see James Franco and Natalie Portman playing the same characters in another in another movie right okay I was about to say that if they do a sequel it's a spin off probably just with those two characters if it was just those two going on a quest and Zooey Deschanel and so Zooey Deschanel being gorgeous and adorable and cute and, and of course because she has actual comedy experience I'm surprised at how well Franco fared because like you would expect that he would be looking upon this disdain but he's having well, probably after coming off of that other piece yeah. did 127 yeah. hours which was really from what I understand was a really intense yeah. experience from him he probably wanted to do something where he really didn't have yeah. to work that hard be that intense and just sit back and have fun yeah. making movies is supposed to be fun once in a while although it doesn't make sense if let's say they decide to do a new Red Sonja film I would not object to seeing Natalie Portman Natalie Portman play Red Sonja okay she is really genuinely good well let's hope that the Conan movie that we're going to get this summer does yeah. well with that thoroughly generic poster it's got because if that does well then you mm-hmm. know what we're going to see we're going to see a resurgence of Robbie mm-hmm. Howard movies because after the right. Conan movies hit big that's when they made Red Sonja I still haven't got to see that Solomon Kane movie yet. I gotta get around to seeing it one of these days. So, okay, I to, guess that's it. So, just to wrap up, to sum up, go ahead, Tom. In terms of theatrical releases, the only film I can recommend was The Black Swan. I did not like Unknown. Did not like The Green Hornet. Did not like Your Highness. Mm. To varying degrees of dislike. Probably the worst of them. I'm gonna say it. I think that Your Highness is probably worse. I was gonna say Green Hornet. There's something about that film, despite the fact that there are things that are positive about it. It just you, went so far off the rails. You can't on, in any good conscience recommend that one. No. No, I can't. And for my part, uh, what I reviewed this episode of Source Code, the time travel, thriller, alternate world, psychological movie with yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal traveling mm-hmm. through time trying to stop a bomb from exploding at a mad bomber. Wait for it to come on Netflix. Limitless. Right. Which is probably not out of the theaters now, but out of all the movies that I reviewed in this one, this is the one that I would say is the only must-see. Yeah. If you see any of the movies I've talked about, you got to see Limitless. That's the best right. one out of the bunch I saw. Battle of Los Angeles, perfectly mm-hmm. respectable war movie. Yes, it's cliche up the wazoo. It's cliche to the point where when we have the characters introduced to us, mm-hmm. they might as well have numbers right. in the order in which they're going to get killed. That's how much of a cliche this movie is. But as I've said before, there is nothing wrong with a cliche movie provided it's done well. And this one is done extremely well. Top marks go to Aaron Eckhart mm-hmm. as well as Michelle Rodriguez. Also, it's on DVD now, Frankie and Alice, right. the Halle Berry psychological drama. If you're not a fan of Halle Berry, you're probably 
probably don't have any interest in this, but I'm recommending it. This is a perfect example. This, as well as if you can also get this through Netflix, the Dorothy Dandridge story. Both those movies are perfect example of the actress that Halle Berry can be when Halle Berry gets out of right. her way. So it's on to the administrative? Yeah. Whether you love us, whether you hate us, whether you want to say that Danny McBride should star in every movie. <laughs> Horrors. And Seth Rogen should play every superhero from now on. Guy who got Kevin Smith hooked on pot. Oh, yeah. Thanks a lot for that, Seth. Really, thanks a lot, dumbass. You see, you don't listen to Smodcast, so you don't know no, I don't. how many times since Zach and Miri he talks about smoking pot. I don't know. Thank you, Seth. I don't know where you guys get the time to listen to all these different podcasts, but like I was telling yeah. you earlier, when Tom came in, we were talking about because on Facebook, and yeah. I just heard about this yesterday, yeah. and folks, I put on Facebook, I said, Kevin Smith is quitting directing going to the radio, which is what I heard. Yeah. He's going to go on the radio. And then I watched it, and I was listening to talk about it, and he even admits, yeah, well, i become a pothead now. And I said, oh, well, now I see why you're quitting directing movies, yeah. because you can't sit and smoke pot all day long and then direct movies. He wants to stay home, smoke pot, anally penetrate I, I, his wife. You know why that's so sad to me? Because, and you and I, being writers, we're creative people. You learn very quickly on. If you don't develop a thick skin yeah. against the critics, first of all, Kevin, if you listen to me at all, you're probably not. But if anybody knows him and passes on to him, yeah. you don't make movies for the critic. Don't listen. But you know what aggravates me about this is that he had a thick skin. Yeah, he did. He had a massive, whale-sized thick skin. This is the guy who cheerfully, at the end of Clerks 2, dedicated the film to Jersey Girl for taking it up the ass. He's got to let that go, the Jersey Girl thing. You made the Something movie. happened. You know what it was? Something happened. To, yeah. I Something mean, happened around the time of Zack and Miri. Yeah. It right. was Zack and Miri that began this downward spiral of his. Mm -hmm. Smodcast started up being a genuinely funny weekly listen. And now it's all about smoking pot, wanting his wife to give up her ass, mm -hmm. and how unfair Hollywood is being to him. You know, knew that going in. And see, me, I have no tolerance for people that go into a situation like that. You know what Hollywood is like. You know it chews you up and spits you out. You know that this year you could be on top of the world and you could be the darling, and the next year you could be in the shitter. You man up and you deal with exactly. it. Exactly. What's your response to making a movie that nobody likes? You make, make another, another movie. Right. Thank you. You go out and you make and another movie. And if it wasn't movie. for Jersey Girl, we would not have gotten Clerks 2. Thank you. Talking about comedies. See, I would put Clerks 2 in one of the ten funniest movies I've ever yeah. seen. Easily. And it's kind of aggravating that he's now flailing around, and every time the critics assault him, rather than saying, okay, I'm going to make another movie, which is what he's done before, he's making similes about how he feels like the retarded kid being picked on in class. And Cop Out, I don't care what the critics say, there was absolutely nothing wrong with Cop Out. But you know what the problem with Cop Out was? The critics that we have today have never seen the right. cop movies from the 70s like me mm -hmm. and you had. Right. Fifteen minutes into the movie, I said, oh... This is a throwback to, I, you know... I'm almost dreading Red State. Yeah. I'm almost... Yeah. Uh, although, I have to say, the one trailer that he's released is really, really offensive. And isn't he going to do a... It's this, and then he's doing the adaptation of the Warren Zevon song. It's a hockey movie? It's called Hit Somebody. Hit Somebody, yeah. It's from one of Warren Zevon's last albums. It's a story song about a hockey player who was not very good. He was only good for beating people up. And all he wanted to do was to score the winning goal in a game. And it's going to be all about that. 
He's co-writing it with the guy who co-wrote the song with Warren Zevon, Mitch Ablin, a Detroit sports writer. Yeah. This is him retreating. He doesn't want to have to deal with it anymore. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, and I really am. And me and you being writers, we've been in that situation not to the level he had. Yeah. I'm not even going to pretend that I'm on the level of a Kevin Smith, who mm-hmm. I think is an extraordinarily talented director. But in my time, I've taken some hits, too, from people. There were a couple of weird hits that you took recently this week on the Altered Visions board. Yeah. One thing I wanted to speak up, I said, no, let Derek have the first say. Because <laughs> I wanted to, like, smack that oh, one guy down. Oh, I you know, know you, what you're talking oh, about. I know you did. We'll talk about that later. I had somebody, actually, my first novel, Dylan yeah. and The Voice Voted. Patricia had sold a whole bunch of copies yeah. on her job. One of the people came up to me, because, of course, I went and I picked up the yeah. one day, and she walked up to me, and she asked me for money back. She said, well, I didn't like that book. Now, folks, if you think that being said in print that something that you read is no good, wait until you have actually somebody in your face demanding their money back. Exactly. Did it feel good? I'm not going to lie and say, no, it didn't feel good. But you know what I did? I went right home, and that's when I started the second book Right. the next day. When I was an editor for Fangoria, I used to do symposiums. I would go to the writer's groups and talk about, this is an editor's point of view about how to deal with the business of writing. And one of the things I always said is, you know what's the best way to respond to a bad rejection letter? It's not to send back an email calling him every name in the book. It's not to go onto every message board you can find and badmouth that editor. It's to sit down and write a story that proves him wrong. Exactly. That's what you do. I've said this before. There are a couple of writers who gain my utmost respect because when I told them this is bad and gave them the reasons, they came back with another story that proved me that it was worth them staying in the game. And it doesn't apply And I stood up and applauded them. And it doesn't apply just to writing. It applies yeah. to any creative endeavor. Mm-hmm. Music, movies, dancing, whatever it is. If somebody tells you that you take it, you let it roll off your back and you keep on going. You yeah. push on. So I only hope that Kevin Smith pulls himself out I mean, of whatever, the sad he, thing is whatever he's, he's in. This is what it looks like to me. Smith is retreating to the place where he only has to preach to the people who love him. Yeah, there you go. Who yeah. worship him. Well, yeah, well, you know, that's the natural thing. When something happens to you outside, what's the first thing you do. When you was a kid, you can go back yeah. to a kid, you fall down. Where you, right. you run back to the people who know you and love you. It's the same way in life. Whenever something bad happens to me, what I do? I go to Patricia and I yeah. say, oh, that son of a bitch did something. You go back to the people who know you and love you and who mm-hmm. give you support, and that's what he's doing. That's only natural. I got nothing wrong with that. And maybe mm-hmm. for now, that's what he needs, but what I am concerned is that he is so public about mm-hmm. this thing about, well, all I want to do all day yeah. long is just sit and smoke pot. That's, that's dangerous to me. Yeah. That's dangerous. And you know what else I think hurt him? The whole thing thing with the airline that he yeah. went through. It's, I think, a combination of things. It's the way Zach and Mary got very badly treated by Miramax. It's the Southwest Airlines thing that just eroded his skin to the point where it's paper thin. You know, I've never gotten about that. First of all, if I was Kevin Smith, I'd be flying first class. And second of all, even if I'm not flying... I think he explained that Southwest had a terminal closer to his house, which is why he flew Southwest. But even if I'm not flying first class, yeah. I'm still Kevin Smith, so I'm buying up the seats next to me yeah. anyway. Well, see me... Well, okay, I admit, I'm an antisocial person. That's why I don't fly. You know why I don't fly? Because you got I don't. Them. No, I don't fly because I can't afford to buy the, whole, the mm-hmm. two seats. Because no, right. I would, because I don't want to talk to anybody right. <laughs> on the airplane. I would either want to read a book, or I want 
sleep. Right. That's what I want to do. I don't want to talk. That's just me. And I've told people that. They said, oh, but that's so mean. That, yeah. No, it's not. First of all, I don't really care for flying in the first mm-hmm. place. And when I do it, I want to do it and get it over with as soon as possible. Right. I do not want to exchange banal conversations with people that I will never see yeah. again in my life. Enough said. Okay. <laughs> so as I was saying, whether you love us, whether you hate us, you, there's another way to reach us. You can send us an email at earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. You can join our message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com and contribute there. You can follow our Facebook page, which is, of course, the Better in the Dark Facebook fan page, which is moderated by our good friend Kalen Conley. You can also follow both Derek and I on Facebook. We each use our own name. We don't use anything goofy or anything like that. You can follow us on LiveJournal. I want you to be able to find me. I don't know about you, but I don't know about too much longer we're going to have live journal you heard about the thing that's that's been pissing me off yeah but you know what it is it's russian hackers (laughs) it has been suggested more than once because you know how much music stuff i do yeah that i should just break all the music stuff off and start a wordpress or something i think you should well you see what i've done i've done my movie reviews Mm -hmm. on one site wordpress yeah and i've moved all the Dylan stuff to yeah. a blog and I'm actually thinking about starting another one either on WordPress mm-hmm. or blog for all my other writing yeah. stuff and put that on there I, I don't know how much more the live drone is going to be around and people have been deserting it in droves because yeah. you go in there sometimes and it's a crapshoot these days as to whether you're going to get yeah. one or not but that's what they said. Actually, I was watching the news one night, and they said because Live Journal is the major social networking thing for Russia, in Russia, and for Russians overseas, the government has apparently been paying Russian hackers to disrupt the service yeah. of Live Journal. Uh, for as long as it leaks last, Derek's is Derek yeah. Ferguson's notebook. And Tom is Space Monkey Mafia. Also, you can keep an eye on PulpWorksPress.com because it is official. The stories are in. How the West Was Weird Volume 2 will be coming out in June. High five. Buddy. And we both have stories both in have st- As does not one but two of our guest hosts, Ron Fortier and Des Reddick, both have stories. This one is going to be a monster, folks. This one is going to have 21 mm-hmm. stories in right. it. And really, first of all, the reception. Now, you know, you're continuing your Sebastian Red stories. Sebastian. I'm introducing a new character. Yeah, yeah. And it's a good. Folks, I've read it. Matter of fact, I've read three or four stories. I read yes. the one by Josh Reynolds. Right. I've read yours. I've read Ron's. Right. Oh my God! I've re- Russ is planning on doing. Is it going to be a full audio book, or is it going to be just a couple of stories or something? I don't know. We're going to see, but there are big plans in the works. I can th- safely confirm one. because Ron asked me. Russ said it was okay. I will be doing the dramatic recitation of Ron's story, The Yellow Dog. And I should say that if you haven't gotten your hands on a copy yet, by all means, go over to Amazon.com right. or you can go to Pulper Press site and get yourself a copy of the first volume of How the West Was And if weird. there is a third volume, I've already thought up a way to get Don Quavo and Dr. Thunder in a room together. I pretty much think that this is going to be a third one. Now, again, right. I don't want to say too much because I hear things mm-hmm. and I talk to people, but this might end up being an annual event. I don't okay. want to say too much about it yet. What I have to do is sit down one of these days and mm-hmm. create a sort of a concordance for all my pulp heroes. Because at this point, I've got what, about a good half dozen of them. You should, yeah. Between Don Quavo and Doc Thunder and Gawain Knight. 
And the luchador from Chimera Falls. And in fact, the story that's coming the closest uh-huh. might be a new Don Cuevo story where we learn the history of El Vengador de Sangre's mask. And we really do have to, well, I'm working on a project yeah. now with Josh Reynolds for Airship 27 that yeah. I can't say anything about because Ron Fortier has told me he will stab me mm-hmm. in the head if I say anything about because he wants to be the one to break the news. Yeah. But after I do that, me and you really have to get back because we've been talking for years about a story where Dylan visits Chimera Falls. Chimera Falls, yeah. yes. Yeah, so there's a lot of exciting stuff that's coming up. Yeah. Through oh, and of course yeah. there's also, and I, in fact, I have to remember to send Mark Maddox a note since everybody is unanimous. They want Mark to do the cover for Amazing Alternative. Oh, Force. absolutely, yeah. He's an amazing artist. Yeah. Also, and we've made some reference to it, if you're interested in fan fiction, Derek and I both have our own little corner in the alteredvisions.org universe. Yay! Where we handle the Avengers, and we Yay! are getting ready, and I'm saying the name now because we're almost at the point where we're going to start releasing the issues. What's that? The Infected, which is going to be the first crossover event. Cue ominous music. Between the East Coast and West Coast Avengers in this fanfic yeah, site. That's right, for the first time ever. Which will also see the introduction of a character. And this is one of the things I love about the Altered Visions universe, that Doug is so open to these things, that we have cinematic characters running around mm-hmm. in the Marvel Universe of the Altered Universe. Right. We've seen Bruce Leroy, Bruce Green. Lee- yeah. Leroy Green in Derek's Prowler series. Mm-hmm. And infected, we'll see the introduction of another major cinematic character to the Marvel universe. I can't wait to see how you go pull. Someone it. who has a specific connection to our very own beloved Elsa Bloodstone. That is going to be so cool. <laughs> I know you can. This is going to be fun. So, so yeah, so there's a lot of stuff we got going on, and you can follow us, like you said, yeah. our Facebook pages. We're on it. We're not hard to find, folks. We're not hard to find. Yeah. And on that note, because we are getting close to a three-hour raw feed, yeah, it's time to say goodnight to him. Because I'm Derek Ferguson. And I'm Tom DJ. <laughs> And until next time, I want to see how you tie this all together. When a Irishman who's too old for his wife is wandering through a medieval forest in search of a stripper with a disassociative personality who wants to become a ballet dancer with a disassociative personality who keeps traveling back in time eight minutes at a clip to... Wait, I'm not done yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> to aid a dumbass so-called superhero and his Asian sidekick... Go see that movie! Good night! Good night, everybody. (laughs) I couldn't believe you were going to tie that up. But I did. I could not believe that. At 1446 Pacific Standard Time, 12 different locations across the globe were breached in what appears to have been a coordinated attack by an unknown enemy. This is a textbook military invasion. Here comes the cool breeze All covered in black Go. A beautiful You've been listening to Better in the Dark featuring Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to all the people who voted for us in the 2010 Earth2.net Awards. Brian of the Hammockus Podcast, Patrick of Stream Queens, Eric Froman, of course, all the lovely members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark sometimes has blackouts, but really wishes it didn't come to in the middle of watching Eli Roth movies. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. 
Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.bitdsite.com, and don't forget to check out all the amazing music available at www.bhyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that accepting strange-looking pills from your friends in seedy bars never, ever ends up in a good way. To avenge the bad twin, she will never be alone, she will never be alone, when she's under his skin. So who the hell is the bad one, with the perfect skin tone? I'll go with you, but I don't want to touch you.